My Take Radio, episode 57 for Thursday, August 26, 2010. The music you just heard was the Universal Studios intro from Scott Pilgrim. You can get that on the official Scott Pilgrim movie score soundtrack on iTunes, Amazon, or any of your other illicit means that you can get that stuff. Uh, as usual, call the number is 347-324-3541. Again, that number is 347 324 3541. A little off guard this week just because of the shorter intro music, but it had to be done. Um, one, because it was actually really, really well done, and two, I will actually be discussing a little bit about Scott Pilgrim this week since I did go to see it uh, with my fiance as well as with Slick. So that is definitely going to be a topic of discussion, as will the minority film report that was covered this week as well. I taped a new episode with Ant yesterday. And we watched the horror slash black comedy Teeth. You can download that on iTunes, or you can also go to the My Take Radio blog talk page, and you will be able to get the newest episode there as well. In some other housekeeping news, the My Take Radio 3.0 site is coming along very nicely. I am definitely very, very hopeful that we can have it started and ready to rock and roll along with the new forum before the Comic-Con in October. Definitely very much ahead of schedule. It's just a matter of moving stuff over, uh, making some changes to some WordPress plugins, things of that nature. So MTR 3.0, well on its way to being completed. As usual, you know the ads are on the site. Most of those ads aren't paid. They're actually for friends of the show. Uh, you can check out some of their offerings, bornstubbornradio.com, Northeast Wasteland, which also has their own show now called the Northeast Wasteland Show. You can check that out at northeastwasteland.com or on Facebook's uh, Northeast Wasteland fan page. In addition to that, MMA Gospel has a banner there. You can catch their show Wednesdays at 8 p.m. And um, am I leaving somebody out? I think I am. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, Branded Baron for their real kick-ass shirts and MMA Valor for your MMA coverage as well. Um, donation button. You know it's there. You know what the deal is. Got a couple of donations in, helping things along. But you know what? To take a little bit of focus off of that, you know I had discussed that my fiance is doing the Making Strides for Breast Cancer Walk. Um, she's actually trying to raise money for that. So if you want to help her out, definitely stop by the Facebook fan page for a link. Uh, for those of you that are friends with me on Facebook, my link is also on the page for you guys to make any contributions to that. Um, given that it's for a great cause, I'd rather the donations get applied to something like that, just something more uh, that is a little bit more closer to home. I mean, the show's close to home for me also, but just on a personal level. Um, if you do want to donate and support, definitely donate to uh, my fiance's Making Strides Against Breast Cancer Walk. I will put the link again on the Facebook fan page after the show. And again, you can just submit donations through there as minimum as the minimum is five bucks. So I'm more than sure somebody can not buy a pack of condoms or some Starbucks and discuss that for sure. 
Um, of course, the Facebook fan page, we have broken 300 fans. We're already on 305. Uh, thank you all that have been spreading the word. We got fans in Australia, Hong Kong, the UK, and Canada. In addition to that, those are also listeners for the show based on the stats I got earlier this week. And that's pretty much all the housekeeping for this week. Here's a rundown of tonight's topics. Strike Force Houston. Tons of crazy shit happened. I see Strider kind of mentioned it already in the chat. Uh, definite uh, shock losses, which will be discussed. There was also a bit of controversy due to a few things that happened after and during the event. Uh, Silva versus Sonnen, too. Huge question mark there. I'll discuss that. James Tony promoting the shit out of UFC 118. He's... Uh, Making it interesting, UFC 118, of course, is this weekend um, at 10 p.m. You can check it out on HD pay-per-view or regular pay-per-view from your local uh, cable provider. We will be watching the fight live. I don't know if there may be a um, uh, a post-show recording, but there's going to definitely be some stuff to be discussed next week. Uh, there is the possibility of an MMA panel for next week's episode to discuss UFC 118, given the magnitude of some of the fights involved, especially the whole hype surrounding the boxing versus MMA fiasco. Just letting you guys know that in advance, in case you don't follow MMA as much, there will be a panel probably for the better, at least half of the show, discussing some of that stuff, as well as some of the stuff for Strike Force. The participants for the panel are still being ironed out, but you'll be able to check that out next Thursday, hopefully. Um, in addition to that, You'll, I'll discuss Monday Night Raw with the Raw Rewind. WWE striking back against Chris Nowitzki for his comments about concussions. Hulk Hogan's tweets from Twitter. There's definitely a couple of gems in there. We got some video game news. We got a shit ton of movie news between sequelitis. We got a couple of what-the-fuck movie stories in there. And lots of comic book movie casting. So without any further ado, let's crack the ball open with this MMA talk first, of course. This past weekend was the Strike Force Houston event um, held at the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, the main events for that card were KJ Nunes and um, Jorge Gurgel was one of the you know more talked about fights on there. Tim Kennedy and Jacare Souza for the middleweight title, which was uh, vacated, and of course the light heavyweight title fight with Fei Zhao versus King Mo. First off, I will tell you this. I say it every week. I go, I don't know why the fuck my mouth is so dry and I'm like dying, but whatever. Strike Force has great talent, fantastic fighters. They do great work with their fights. They're announcing fucking atrocious. I would rather grate my fingernails on a chalkboard and have someone scream in my ear than hear some of the bullshit that comes out of the mouths of some of these guys. Just utter, just utter disbelief some of the shit I hear, and I'm just like, I'm like, you guys really get paid for this shit. And it boggles my mind, like, some of the statements, some of the statements that are made. It's just like, oh, that guy's in a bit of a predicament. Just real hokey bullshit. Definitely not a fan of that. Um, they really do have talented fighters. Um, King Mo. The guy comes in, he has a, a, a really, really light fight record, but the guy, he, he really knows how to sell fights. He, he's definitely borrowed a lot from guys like Ric Flair and stuff. He knows how to be a showman. 
He knows how to pique people's interest. He knows how to say the right things at the right times to guarantee that either you're going to want to watch it for him to beat someone's ass or for him to get his face punched in. It's just the way it is. Of course, Bobby Lashley fought on this card, and that's the first thing I want to talk about. Bobby Lashley was going in 5-0. and He was fighting Chad Griggs. Um, Lashley, as soon as the first round started, he immediately went for a takedown. He got half guard. He went to side control. You know, Lashley was doing fairly well in the first round. He ended up catching an uppercut towards the end of the round that cut him under his eye. Um, Lashley also got a couple of punches on Griggs. But Lashley definitely controlled from the top mount position, so he did take the first round. Uh, the cut that he did have under his eye is, was ridiculously deep. It looked like a fucking cavern. Um, round two, Lashley went for the takedown. This time it got stuffed, but he finished it with a huge slam into half guard. Then from there, they, uh, he was on top, and they um, actually, Lashley stayed on top in the mount, and then, you know, Griggs was fucking smashing him from, from bottom position, but Lashley was doing more damage from the top. Nonetheless, the ref didn't like that there was a, a lull in the action, stood him back up. Lashley, though, you can tell that he was definitely winded. He took his time getting back up. When he got up, he turned his back to Griggs and walked to the corner. The doctor came in, checked his cut. He ruled Lashley could continue. Uh, Griggs stuffed a second takedown. They ended up in the sprawl position. Griggs worked uppercuts, and then Lashley got a single leg takedown. Griggs started raining hammer fists, heavy hammer fists, and the bell ended the round. After, between rounds, Lashley quit giving the fight to Griggs, so Chad Griggs ended up winning by TKO, technical decision. So Lashley, the whole mystique about Lashley and his fight with Batista and heavyweight title aspirations gone. It's it's ridiculous. It's um the thing that bo- that bogs me and uh, that bogs me and well that bugs me out and you know kind of breaks breaks it down a little bit is the fact that they this is what bugs me about Strike Force. They take guys like like Lashley, Kimbo, Kimbo Slice, and they and they just they they hop on the bandwagon so to speak and they kind of hedge all their hopes on the on these huge heavyweights, guys like Fedor, um, Alistair Overeem. Not that they're not, they don't deserve the praise and the credibility, but it seems Strikeforce tends to put their their eggs in one basket, and it tends to bite them in the ass a little bit, because, of course, you know, Lashley 5-0, and a lot of people said he had a couple of soft fights, and this is the fight where he truly got tested. In a way, I got to agree, but... Again, Lashley's 5-0. and He was just starting out. He got caught out there. Him quitting between rounds, I feel that there was definitely more to that. He actually ended up being taken out of the arena in a stretcher. He was in the hospital due to dehydration, so maybe there were issues with the weight cutting. One thing that I will discuss after this Strikeforce report is some of the other stuff that had, that, that had a lot of people's eyebrows raised. But nonetheless, nice win for Chad Griggs. Bobby Lashley got exposed. And, you know, the mystique of Lashley is kind of out the window for the moment. The lightweight fight, which I was really excited for, was uh, George Grigel. He was fighting K.J. Nunes. I'm a huge George Grigel fan. He's a, he's a fantastic uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. K.J. Nunes, always known for his great stand-up. Um, Nunes actually ended up winning the fight by TKO to, from strikes. Um, there were a couple of little, you know, slight controversial moments, depending on who you ask. Um, after the bell, Nunes ended up hitting Gurgel. 
but that was because the bell rang and he was mid-strike. So I can see the rationale where people kind of raise their eyebrow, but he was already in motion, so the punch had to fucking – it had to connect somewhere. There was also an inadvertent knee to the uh, – an illegal knee when Gershel was down. It ended up being K.J. Noons winning by TKO and sh- via strikes in round two. Some people say that the knee grazed him. Some people say that the knee did connect. Um, K.J. Noons expressed his interest in wanting to fight Nick Diaz next. I'm going to discuss that just because, once again, Strikeforce kind of not doing the better the, – the fights that the fans want to see and just doing not, – not the mandatory fights, but just not the fights that people really give a fuck about. The Strikeforce middleweight title fight with Tim Kennedy and Ronaldo Jacare Souza. Um, this fight actually ended up going unanimous decision to Jacare. I actually felt that Tim Kennedy won the fight. There was really, it was really close to call. Um, definitely Jacare, I felt he, he was a little bit more dominant in the first and second rounds, even slightly in the third. But Kennedy, Kennedy definitely did some damage in the fourth. And I kind of wanted to give it to Kennedy in the fifth. Like I said, I was more sketchy on round three, and Tim Kennedy has already expressed his desire for a rematch with Jacare. It's uh, again, uh, Jacare is a great fighter, and as middleweight champion, I'm sure he's going to put on some exciting fights. But again, another fight that was just really close to call. So I'm really looking forward to a rematch with these two guys, just to really see. And I'd really like a decisive victory, just because you don't want to leave it in the judges' hands because. Like I said, there were moments when I took Kennedy as the winner in the fight, but what can you do? And, of course, the light heavyweight title fight was Fei Zhao fighting King Mo. Um, Fei Zhao, round one, coming in, putting in that work. Mo came in round two. Round three, though, Fei Zhao started catching King Mo a little bit. Uh, he caught him with a right, then a knee. Uh, King Mo hit Fei Zhao with a right. He ate another knee. Then a huge right hand from Fei Zhao dropped Mo. Uh, King Mo tried to grab a single leg to survive, but he ended up eating some elbows to the side of the head, more elbows, and the ref ended up stopping the fight. Um, King Mo, very humble in his loss. He did a great job selling the fight. Not a huge amount of shit talking because he had some respect for the fighter, which is, which is always nice, too. King Mo actually is going in for knee surgery. He's going to be out nine months there were, you know, there's been rumors saying that he had already needed his knee to be fixed and he wanted to take one more fight prior to the surgery. Make of it what you will, but definitely a, an impressive performance by Fei Zhao. Um, King Mo, again, he was 7-0. and He's another guy like Lashley, um, you know, all these undefeated prospects. Even Fedor, who's a veteran, they come in, they're really sure of themselves, they got a you know a bunch of piss and vinegar, which is great. But at some point you have to lose. And one one thing that I like is the fact that it's not so much getting in, getting into the fight and surviving. It's the fact of how you how you improve as a fighter from your loss. And a guy like Lashley, I'm more than sure he's going to go back in the lab. He may come back better. Like I said, there has to be more to him throwing in the towel between the second and third rounds. Will we ever find that out? Who knows? Feijiao, on the other hand, definitely a great performance from him. King Mo just got caught out there. You can see that Mo's inexperience to an extent was shown, but then again, King Mo threw a beating on Gegard Musasi. And um, in, in respect to that, I don't know. I, maybe it could have been the knee. I don't want to make excuses 
for King Mo because he sure as hell didn't make any. And it is what it is, but I have a feeling this isn't the last we'll see of King Mo, especially in Strike Force. And not for nothing, I'd actually like to see King Mo in the UFC. He's kind of got a bit of a beef going on via Twitter with Rampage. So uh, King Mo versus Rampage would be an awesome fight to see. King Mo and Rashad Evans would be just as good of a, as a fight to see. Um, these are guys that in Strike Force they're being used, but I just feel they're not used well. I don't know if it's partially Strike Force's presentation on broadcast television. I don't know if the announcers are doing as good of a job of helping you connect with the fighters, but I can tell you that Feijao definitely, you know, he made me a fan just because he was a he, he performed so well and his striking was so crisp. King Mo, I was already a fan of his. I actually had King Mo picked to retain, but it is what it is. Like I said, a complete night of upsets from Strike Force, which leads me into some of the shit that happened after the event. Two things that raised red flags. Number one, all the fighters in Strike Force were not subjected to drug testing. Now, of course, you know, when you look at a guy like Lashley, you automatically want to say that he's on roids. He's always been tested, he's been clean. I'm, not, I'm never going to make an accusation that he was on steroids, but the fact that the state of Texas did nothing in regards to doing drug testing, definitely not something I'm, I'm cool with just because if the fighters knew in advance that there wasn't going to be any testing, you know, certain things could have snuck, snuck through the cracks. Not that I'm saying that they did, but it's one of those things that's definitely um, an eyebrow raiser for sure. And the statement that they released was as follows. Our rules were and still are that we do not require drug testing for combat sports, a TDLR spokesman said. If there is a good cause, our executive director can order a drug screen at any time. And if this does happen, the drug screen is performed and the contestant is responsible for paying the cost of the drug screen. You know, when, when UFC did an event in Texas, they made sure to have a special request to make sure that drug testing was carried out. In a way, I kind of feel that Strike Force dropped the ball in regards to that. They really should have had some testing done just because it, it helps weed out any, any doubt in anybody's minds for whatever reason. So definitely not cool that there was no testing. The second thing was the use of canned oxygen, both by King Mo and by KJ News between rounds. As it turns out, Strike Force allowed the use of the bottled oxygen and the Susan Stafford from the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation actually addressed these concerns as follows. On the use of oxygen by King Mo and KJ, she goes, it's my understanding that the physician did consult with the ringside physician, and it was approved. It was within the rules. In regards to them discussing Noon's striking Gurgel at the end of the first round, which I said, you know, he couldn't stop before the bell rang, no action will be taken against the referee, and about the Bobby Lashley stand-up from the mount, she addressed that as well, and she said that the referee felt that there was a lull in the action and had gotten them to their feet when he saw the cut. The referee had the doctor look at it and started the action again on their feet. Um, again, I'm really, the, the oxygen thing, there's a huge, huge bunch of jokes about the oxygen thing. One of my favorites being the Spaceballs joke, which I'm sure Dark Helmet will love, the use of canned air. Um, definitely something that raised quite a few eyebrows. I had never seen something like that ever. Um, MiddleEasy.com has actually uh, wrote a really great article about it. It's really funny. If you get a chance, check it out at MiddleEasy.com, and you can read uh, their thoughts on the whole Oxygen Gate scandal for sure. Next, of course, 
upcoming events, Strikeforce announced that their next card is going to be October 9th at the Shark Tank in San Jose. Sarah Kaufman is going to fight Marluz Conan, uh, Matt Lindland, and Luke Rockhold, and a title defense by Nick Diaz. Here's where I had an issue. On paper, the fight that Nick Diaz should be having should be against Jason Mayhem Miller, given the issue that happened between them at the previous Strike Force card with, uh, of course, Jake Shields and the whole big rumble that ensued where the Caesar Gracie camp uh, pretty much jumped Mayhem after an altercation with Jake Shields. Everybody wants to see that fight. Mayhem has been actively, actively trying to get that fight from wearing T-shirts to talking shit about Nick Diaz. It's really a fight that should happen just because it'll get you a buy rate. They really don't like each other, and, of course, people are going to want to see that. Now, of course, there's issues of weight. At what weight should they fight at? Should it be a catch weight? Strikeforce should have gone with that because that's the fight people want to see. They actually ended up saying that K.J. Nunes is going to be challenging Nick Diaz for the Strikeforce welterweight title in San Jose. Again, not a decision I'm very happy with just because, like I said, I really wanted to see Diaz and Mayhem fight. That, that's the fight that, that people want to see, especially Twitter on the web, just because of the outstanding beef between them. But again, Strikeforce does some things right, but then they have a large percentage of things they do wrong. We'll see how it pans out in the coming weeks. In regards to Chael Sonnen and Anderson Silva going at it a second time, Dana White did discuss that on ESPN Sports Center, and he said the following. It's definitely a rematch I think people are wanting to see. Looking at Twitter, everybody's saying rematch, rematch. We'll see what happens. Vitor Belfort is waiting to fight right now, too. We could do a rematch with Chael, but we'll see what happens. We'll see how it goes. Worst case, we'll see that rematch in 2011. I think that if Chael Sonnen um, comes in with, 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 a, with a couple of alterations to his game plan, he can beat Anderson Silva. Anderson Silva is beatable. Chael Sonnen did prove that. But once again, Chael Sonnen's submission defense definitely is something that he will be working on so he doesn't get caught with any triangle chokes out of nowhere. That's definitely something that we, we don't want to see happen in the future. And I feel that a rematch between them is, is just a no-brainer. I mean, yeah, Vitor Belfort is there, and he can come in. But you know what? Vitor Belfort can fight the next guy. It's, it's one of those things where he can fight one other guy right before the title shot. Sometimes I really get annoyed with these guys that come in, and they automatically want their first title shot. It. it it's nice because it'll spike a buy rate and it'll get people interested, but coming in right off the bat and getting a title shot, same thing with Jake Shields. He wanted to come in automatically, get a title shot. Not the way it works. You need at least one or two fights in the organization before you challenge for a belt. It's just the way it is. It helps to build a fan base, build a buzz, you know, especially in a new organization. But, again, I really want to see Sonnen and Silva, too. Like I said, it's unfinished business. Chael Sonnen, great showman, uh, class act, knows how to sell a fight, went in there and did exactly what he said, which is he was going to beat Anderson Silva's ass, which he did do for about four for almost, you know, four and a half rounds, so to speak. So can he do it a second time? Who knows? But fuck, I'll pay forty nine ninety five to see that shit again. And with that, we're going to bring in our first caller, and it is Strider. Strider, what's going on, dude? Uh, not much, man. Uh, I just heard you talking about the, uh, I know about it, well, a few minutes ago, you talked about Fei Zhao and, uh, King Mo. 
And uh, I saw that match, uh, thank God for Showtime. And, uh, wow, I must say that was a very entertaining match. Uh, Because I saw the the strike force before that. And uh, I was just noticing how, you know, he was talking a little bit of smack about how Fei Zhao's not going to do this, he's going to bust that ass and all that shit. And then, you know, fight time comes, and, you know, he was he was, he was holding his own for the first round. And then the second round came by and just got him in that freaking Muay Thai clinch. Freaking Fei Zhao just made him eat those knees and just dropped him. And I must say, I just wanted to comment that that was just a very nice fight. And anyone who missed out on that shit, I hope they can probably, I hope they can get their hands on it or find it somewhere on the web. Uh, I think Strike Force is streaming it on their site, so you might be able to check it out there too. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Well, did you get to catch the whole card or only that last fight? Uh, I actually saw the rest. I saw most of the re- most of the other fights. Uh, there was a one other fight. Uh, I think that Jacare and uh, that uh, Kennedy fight. I think I don't know. Uh, it was. I, mean, I guess that was more. I, I think close, the man. whole uh, judgment shouldn't have been towards Jacare. It's uh, it seemed like it was kind of biased. It seems like they were looking more at uh, at Kennedy's busted eye, you know, like oh my god, his eyes busted. Oh man, that means he can't fight. He's not going to fight that well for the rest of the round and shit like that. They weren't looking. It seems like they weren't looking at you know the rest of the fight. They weren't they were looking at the technical aspects of how they were going at each other, uh, how they were landing blows on each other. Um, they just, it, it seems, it seems a bit biased on how the, uh, the, uh, the judgment went, you know, with the busted eye and Jockery coming in with, coming out without a scratch. And, uh, well, that was just, that was one I, other thing I noticed. Well, what did you think, what do you think of Strike Force's presentation? I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I, I was agree, I about agree the, with you about, I agree with you about the freaking, uh, the announcer. Seriously, I mean, it, it is terrible. It, 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 it feels like I'm watching WCW back when nobody gave a shit. Nice, that's that's a that's a good analogy for that. I mean, seriously, it's like it's like you know the announcers like announces, oh, back to the stage, here comes this guy, this guy, and you know the crowd says, yee woo, and that's it. There's nobody I on don't... their feet. There's nobody cheering. It's you know they're using generic music. Uh, when yep. King Mo came out, when King Mo came out, fucking, they had freaking uh, grenades dancing to his music, freaking fat chicks, freaking stretch marks everywhere and shit, fucking Ricky Lake. Oh my God, it was just, it was just really low budget. That's the that's the one thing I that's where that's where you look at the UFC and you say UFC knows how to put on a show. There's licensed music, dudes come out, crowd and you, you know a lot of times. If you notice, a lot of the fighters come out with their headphones on because they don't want to hear that generic Euro trash shit that that fucking Strike Force gets that default sub music. It's like it's like when you're picking background music in a video game and you have like track eight where it's like the worst shit ever, like some house shit that they just put together on a fucking Casio keyboard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, was like, gonna, I can't. I can't even hear not one. I'm not sure they have even not one metal track they can play, as you know, as they present the next fighter coming out. I'm not sure what the hell is up with that. I don't know if it's the licensing fees, uh, you know, the license to play 
the song that whatever they have playing and shit. I think King Mo was the only person, the only fighter that had an original song, but everybody else, even though that was garbage, but everybody else still, oh, Lord. It's like these well, guys King Mo's a flashy freaking, dude. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, King Mo doesn't need much, you know. I mean, he, he gets the crowd hype anywhere he goes because of his personality. You know, he's a typical, he's a typical black guy in a freaking, you know, in a movie, you know, in a sports movie, you know, show off all that shit. But it seems like ugh, everybody else is just, it's like, it's almost like they're feeling, it's like really low budget. Like they're getting paid in, it's like, I don't, how much do they pay these guys? It's like they're getting paid in nickels or something? Well, most of the, most of those guys make make some decent money, but there's definitely huge discrepancies in pay based on contracts and things of that nature. I, I will you I will tell you this. My analogy for King Mo is that King Mo is the Willie Mays Hayes of MMA. Nah, that's what he's a lot of flash. He's a lot of he's a lot of flash in the pan, and you know he just needs to be humbled, and then he's going to be great. And that, that's what happened. You know, if you've seen Major League, you know, Willie Mays, hey, he's a lot of flash, kind of blew up in his face, comes back. You know, he's the, he's the clutch guy in the end. I think for the organization, for Strike Force, they need they, – they can't just put their eggs in one basket with guys like Fedor all the time. Like, oh, fucking Fedor this and Fedor that, because now Fedor lost. Same shit happened like with Kimbo Slice. Now what? Yeah. And I think they really need to put give a little bit more credit into, uh, or they need to put a little bit more effort into promoting and uh, endorsing their other fighters because all these other matches that I've seen have been pretty decent, and uh, I don't see them getting any type of uh, any star treatment and uh, any type nope. of hype going over them. And it's like these guys are, I mean, a lot of these strike forces missing out. They're biting themselves in the ass by being so freaking lazy with this shit. It really is unfortunate, man. I will tell you this though, that their their women's tournament was was kind of well done. But again, when they first announced it, it sounded it sounded great on paper. Then they were saying that they couldn't do uh, sudden you know sudden death rounds. They didn't want that. Like they'd get two rounds and they'd have to decide a winner. Like all of a sudden the rules got changed and it started fucking sullying the tournament. It's like they start off so good and then they just fucking it's like they drop the ball. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, I'm glad you checked it out, dude. I, I, you know, it'd be cool if you, um, if you get a chance, if you could go to a bar or something, definitely check out UFC 118, man, because I think I think that James Tony fight is going to be something worth watching. Oh, the James Tony and uh, and uh, Randy Couture. Yeah, dude. I think if, if you could find a spot. Uh, oh yeah, yeah right, Randy. What? James Tony selling that shit, dude. Oh yeah. Let me see. Is it? Fuck. There was something else on my screen fucking froze. All right. I guess that's uh, it, Strider. I guess you're good. <laughs> okay, man. I might call back later when you start raging on the uh, on the uh, ass crackers that is known as movie news. Oh, yeah. You're going to love that, dude. Oh, yeah, man. Later. All right. Later. Why is my, fr- my screen frozen? I tell you, it's always some bullshit. All right. Here we go. UFC fighter, well, former UFC fighter War Machine has finally been sentenced. Of course, a couple of weeks back, we discussed that War Machine had gotten arrested for getting into a huge bar brawl. It ends up that he finally got sentenced. He was sentenced to a year in jail for felony assault. 
Uh, the fight, you know, War Machine pled guilty to two charges of assault with a deadly weapon relating to a bar fight in San Diego earlier this year. It kind of felt like that shit was going on forever, but he's finally been sentenced. He's doing a year. Um, the judge sentenced War Machine to a year in a county jail with three years of probation. That includes a prohibition against drinking or going into any establishments where alcohol is the main focus. So he is going to do a little bid for a year. It's funny because War Machine, you know, I kind of had a lot of uh, a lot of jokes on him when he started doing the, the porn movies and stuff. But in, in following him on Twitter and just 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 like kind of seeing the methods to his madness, he there there are a little bit of there are a little bit of similarities to to Mike Tyson, not totally obviously, but just in, in the way that the guy has such a, a huge wealth of talent. But you know, he just wrong place, wrong time. You get caught up in in all these crazy situations. I honestly hope that he'll go in, he'll do the year, he'll come out better, and he can he can actually get his career back on track. The guy's he has the look of a fighter. He has a, a just a, a great presence about him. He, he's really honest with his opinions. Some people just aren't ready for that. And it, you know, it took a while that I was, you know, I kind of had my, my jokes on the shit. But um, he, in, in following him on Twitter, and, you know, I've, I've messaged with him on Twitter back and forth a little bit, not too much. He's just, he's really a loyal dude that some people are just born in the wrong time. Like, like he's really like, a dude that wants to go in there and bust people's faces. His opinions are, you know, his, the opinions are his own. There's nothing canned. There's nothing corporate. There's nothing um, cookie cutter about it. The guy, the guy knows what he wants, and he and he just said, says how he feels. Sometimes people take it the the right way or the wrong way. I mean, and who am I to argue that shit? I say offensive shit all the time. Some people, you know, they take it the right way or the wrong way. So fuck them. James Tony. Oh boy. James Tony has done he, – he's like Chael Sonnen for boxing. He has talked ridiculous amounts of shit this week leading up to this fight with Randy Couture. And, of course, everybody's billing it as boxing versus MMA, yada, 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 yada. But the fact is that James Tony is just talking so much shit that you really get amped to want to see him fight. I got a friend of mine who – he doesn't really watch MMA a lot, but he said to me, dude, I think I may have to come by your house and watch this fight. Because the, the, the allure of this, the, it's not even freak show anymore, and it's not even boxing versus MMA. Because James Tony, he respects the sport. He has his opinions, which are sometimes a little fucking out there. But he wants to come in and really showcase his talent and be a two-sport athlete in boxing and MMA. And I have to admire that. I have to respect that because not too many guys are stepping up to do that. And on top of that, he wants to fight one, one of the, he, a legend. He wants to fight one of the toughest guys in the sport. When they offered him Kimbo Slice, who coincidentally is going into professional boxing now, as uh, he's going into heavyweight boxing, I'll actually see if I can see some more news for that next week, but Kimbo Slice is going into boxing, so his MMA days for now are behind him. James Tony, he, fo he followed Dana White around, he talked a, a load of shit, and he really feels that he can come into MMA and dominate. You're talking about a guy who's, who's striking, whose stand-up is so crisp, like Joe Rogan is, has gone on record saying it, and, you know, King Mo trained with him a little bit. His striking is precise and perfect. 
He really knows the sweet science that is boxing, and that is very dangerous because Randy Couture is a master of the bully, the bully offense. He, ta- he bullies you in a corner. He uses the dirty boxing. He uses the cage as, as almost an extension of himself to put beatings on these guys. And then once he breaks their spirit, he takes it to the ground. There's either, you know, there's ground and pound. There's possible submission. But you really got to be careful with bullying a guy like James Tony. You put James Tony into a corner, he may fucking uppercut you fr- from the gut and just decapitate Randy Couture. You got a guy with serious punching power with only with only four ounce gloves separating his fists from your face. It's it's really crazy. I mean, Randy Couture's got to fight this fight very smart because if he tries to go in there and do any kind of trading, I really see it ending badly for the natural. Now, a lot of people, you know, you see them on Twitter. Oh, Randy Couture's going to go in there. He's going to whoop James. He he is. But there's always a puncher's chance, especially when that puncher is a guy that has serious, serious record behind him. In terms of stand-up, his boxing record, ridiculous. He's been champion, I believe, in four divisions. He's got nobody in boxing that wants to fight him. And he decided, I need to fight. MMA is the next best thing. Who knows? He may come into MMA and achieve his dream of being a two-sport champion. It's something that that's just very interesting to watch. And like I said, he's done a really great job hyping up this fight. Here's some highlights, actually, from some of the stuff he said this week. When he met face-to-face with Randy Couture, he said, I seen fear. I smelled it, too. Everybody can sit there and say, oh, Randy was tough. He was cool. All the Randy Couture fans were saying that. Up close and personal, you can see it in his eyes. He ain't never seen nobody like me in his life. When asked about what Randy Couture should fear about him, he said, I'm a whole different species. I'm something he ain't never seen before in his fucking life. I can knock him out or I can choke him out. I don't know about that. Either or. Wherever you want to go, I'm, I'm a big, strong dude. I've been strong all my life. This is nothing new to me. When asked about his fight plan, he said, my angles offset what he does say. We made a few adjustments, and it's coming. It's coming. You'll like what you see, but it's still vintage James Tony. On He was actually he was one of the few people that didn't take part in a media workout. He said, I never work out. I don't do media days even during boxing events. I never have, and I never will. I don't want nobody to see what I'm doing, especially all of them other clowns from his camp. It is what it is. I'd rather stay down here and let the people know who I am. When asked about how his training camp went, he goes, I think everything went great according to plan. I trained hard every day. I trained, I trained 14 days on, one day off. Well, half a day because, you know, I like to work out despite what everybody else says about me. It went good. I'm going to give my camp a B-plus just because it's new. When asked, of course, whether he can win, he said, Randy Couture will find out. All he has to do is show up on Saturday night, and he'll find out. After the fight, ask him. After he wakes up, ask him. If Randy tries to stand and trade with me, he gets knocked out. He gets knocked the fuck out. You know, just in hearing those kind of words, it's really just a, a, a great thing to see. It's, it's, and, you know, in looking at the chat, I see Handel wants to see Tony lose because he's tired of his mouth. And, and you know what? You're right. And that's a reason why some people are going to want to see these fights, especially this fight. I mean, B.J. Penn and Frankie Edgar's rematch, definitely want to see it. Uh, Joe Lazan, Gabe Rudiger, definitely want to see that. There's fights on the card I want to see, but this Tony Couture fight just has piqued my interest just because it's so – there's such a weird vibe about it. And like I said, Tony's done such a, such a fantastic job – 
and just shit-talking. Like, Randy Couture is always going to be Randy Couture, humble, respectful, just true to the game, a consummate professional, and that's great. But you sometimes you need a, a guy like James Tony. You need a villain. He falls right in line with a guy like Brock Lesnar, a guy like Josh Koscheck, even to an extent Dan Hardy. You need those guys that, that got that swag about him, that, that shit-talking, because sometimes the shit-talking helps sell the fight a little more. Chael Sonnen did the same thing. He, Chael Sonnen fucking took it up to level 11. You know, he went off the dial with it. And you need that because, yeah, the Edgar and BJ Penn rematch is great, and I'm not taking anything away from both those guys. BJ Penn is one of the best pound-for-pound lightweights in the world. But this fight, this heavyweight, this light heavyweight slash heavyweight fight, because they, I, I believe it's being contested under heavyweight rules, is just, it's just too good to pass up. So if you got pay-per-view, definitely it's a hard sell on my part. I feel like I work for the UFC. Definitely check it out. That's going to be Saturday night at 10 p.m. in high definition. So you, if you've got an HD TV, definitely watch a UFC event in HD. It's awesome. Fucking bloodshed and carnage in high def. Always great to watch. And if not, go to your local bar. They may have it there. Go to your local fucking Applebee's because Applebee's likes to fucking, you know, hang on to the UFC's balls and promote their events or even your local Hooters and check it out for sure. I'm going to take a quick commercial break because there is a ton of shit to talk about with wrestling right after this. You know those shows where they play video game music and they laugh in like really high voices like... (laughs) Well, you won't listen to that on our show because we don't have the budget for that kind of thing. We're broke as hell. And uh, nobody really cares that much to laugh that hard. So um, if you're looking for a show like that that has horrible audio quality and uh, void of fake laughter... Video Game News Radio, 11 p.m. Tuesday nights, on all games. All right, we're back. Let's talk some wrestling. Last week, I discussed, of course, the passing of Lance Cade, at which point there was actually an article placed where uh, Chris Nowitzki, who used to wrestle as Chris Harvard on WWE Raw and and on Tough Enough as well, and I think even a brief stint on SmackDown, he actually ended up going becoming one of, the leading, uh, one of the leading authorities on concussions. And his, his opinions actually weighed heavily on the Chris Benoit situation. He, he had some really great insight into some of the trauma to the brain of the late Chris Benoit, and he released a statement um, kind of shitting on the WWE, one, because of the Lance Cade situation, two, just because of the work environment. And, of course, with Linda McMahon running for Senate, it was bound to get really ugly really fast. And, of course, WWE made sure to put out a statement to address Chris Nowinski's allegations last week. Here's their statement. I'm going to break it down for you a little bit. WWE raises credibility issues for Chris Nowinski. Number one, Chris Nowinski did not reveal as required that he suffered previous concussions before signing his contract with WWE. Number two, he states WWE suggested that his performers take steroids. However, at no time does he ever state that it was suggested that he do so. His comments that WWE talent perform in 200 matches a year is not factual. In 2009, the average roster talent performed 135 days. Going on, a sheer fabrication that he went through tables four days a week. Mr. Nowitzki states that they have an environment where it's absolutely unsafe to work in that ring. 
They have no oversight into act- what actually happens in the ring. If so, then why would Mr. Nowinski have ever wanted to be part of such an environment? They went on to add, it's very dubi- dubious that he ever had a conversation with Lance Cade, much less Lance Cade confiding to a t- total stranger that he used painkillers pain and steroids. Although renowned in the field of CTE, we are aware we are unaware of any specific qualifications or medical degrees that he possesses which would qualify him as an expert on steroids and painkillers. Chris Nowinski, of course, responded shortly thereafter in an interview with The Hill, and it's, this is going to get really bad. His responses are as follows. On WWE's claim that he never spoke with Lance Cade, they don't think I've ever met my 2003 tag team partner in the WWE developmental system who I worked with in Cincinnati and Louisville in 2002 and 2003 almost daily and so regularly while working with the WWE until 2007. Right there, that's fucking huge because he, he pretty much blew up the whole smoke and mirror that how would they know each other. And he has facts right there stating how they knew each other, which is definitely huge. When asked about why he spoke out, When someone would disrespect a deceased former employee when she's seeking a senancy as a patriot, you have to say something. You want to make sure good people are in those jobs. On WWE's claim that nobody asked him to take steroids, he said, the point I was making was that they reward people who take steroids. I can never prove I had that conversation with Lance because Lance died when he was 29 years old. They want to call me a liar. The person who can confirm it is dead after he worked for them for almost a decade. When it was brought to his attention about WWE and his concussion history when he was hired, he said, I was unaware that I had a concussion history until the last one. On the claim that talent works 135 days a year, he said, not every talent performs 200 days a year. I may have rounded up. This is, it's going to be a lot of back and forth, and I said this last week, with Linda McMahon running for Senate, anybody that thinks that they're going to come out of the woodwork and say anything disparaging about WWE, the McMahons, anything leading up to her run for the Senate is gonna is sorely mistaken because there's a legal team and a group of spin doctors that are gonna come out and they're going to squash any and every rumor possible out there. It's ridiculous. It's it's one of those things where I really feel bad for the business of wrestling when so many young athletes die, and, and when you look at, the, at just the cause of death for so many of these guys, it's drug use, it's health conditions brought on by drug use, steroid use, uh, depression, uh, people like Canyon who are bipolar, you know, suicide-induced uh, deaths. It, it really is a huge blemish on a sport that, let's be real, wrestling for all intents and purposes is fake. It is scripted. The, the impact, the, the, the injuries, all of that is real. It's, it's more, I would equate it to physical acting carried out to, to, a, to a very extreme level. And I just feel that for athletes to need to take steroids to compete in that environment and really not learning the ramifications of what those steroids would do to them, it's ridiculous. And a lot of these guys... They're doing it because they want to not lose their spots. They want to heal from injuries faster. Not realizing that down the road, you're going to be a fucking vegetable. I want to take a couple of examples and bring them to your attention. Superstar Billy Graham, I grew up watching him. Uh, Jesse the Body Ventura was based on Superstar Billy Graham. Hulk Hogan was based upon Superstar Billy Graham. 
if you get a chance, you guys in the chat, definitely just Google superstar Billy Graham um, wrestling. And then Google superstar Billy Graham current. The guy did a lot of steroids. He, he's had um, kidney issues. I believe he's had heart issues. The, the guy's a mess. He walks with a cane. When you look at what this guy looked like back then and how he looks now, it's just, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a sad thing. Guys like Lex Luger, like I discussed last week, you know, he, he was in a fucking wheelchair. He had a spinal stroke, almost died. Uh, and you could just run out. Guys like Hogan, who I'm going to discuss with some of the tweets he put up, they're, it's really unfortunate that some of these guys, they, they put their bodies through, through, such, through such trauma, and, and they want to be successful, and that's great because there's a lot of money to be made, but they're really shortchanging themselves down the road. And a lot of, some of these guys end up, end up with no money or doing, um, you know, shows in gyms, which there's nothing wrong with that, smaller crowds, more intimate atmosphere, but some of these guys are just doing it to make ends meet, and it's unfortunate. Some are really, really fucked up. And it's sad. I actually read an article, and I'll bring that up as well. Jake the Snake actually announced his retirement recently from professional wrestling. Jake the Snake, a legend, one of the, one of the best bad guys in the business. If you've, if you've never seen an old 19, I'd say 1987-88 Jake the Snake promo, you're really missing something. And you'll see a guy who was ahead of the game in terms of just being a psychological bad guy. And he was just mired in drug use. Um, alcohol, alcoholism, the, the works. And, and, you know, he's gone through rehab, he's come back, he's gone through rehab, he's found Jesus. It, it, it's really crazy. And Jake the Snake is just a legend in this business. And, again, yeah, that hard partying, hard living lifestyle caught up with him. Scott Hall, who's actually, I said a few weeks back, he was in re, he was actually in the hospital for pneumonia. Turns out that that press release was a fucking lie. Kevin Nash posted on Twitter that Scott Hall is actually in a WWE-assisted rehab, and he put the following in his Twitter. Scott is under the care of WWE's wellness program. God bless Ann and Vince for taking care of my friend. Scott Hall is another guy, super talented, uh, just, just great matches, great history. Again, drugs, alcohol, all that shit. Just fucked him up. And it's crazy that all these wrestlers are going to speak out about it now and since Linda McMahon is running for Senate, that, you know, whether it's true or not, they will never get an open platform to express themselves because they're just going to be squashed by the WWE regime. You know, it's going to be WWE versus the wrestlers, and it's going to be WWE always winning. And with Linda running for Senate, there's going to be no stopping it. Chris Nowinski, like I said, great work with CTE. He exposed a huge, huge side effect with chair shots and concussions and the type of effect that that will have on athletes. But him going to war against the WWE machine, it's, it's definitely a no-win situation. Which leads me to a very interesting interview that I um, got to catch that was put up from The Courier in the U.K. with Ted DiBiase Sr., not Jr., where he actually admitted to taking steroids. And some of his statements you guys are going to get a kick out of when – Discussing steroids, he said, I took steroids during my WWF career for a short time. It should be obvious by looking at me that I didn't take them regularly because I was in good shape, which is true. But I was never massive. My strength was my ability to talk and my work in the ring. I always looked like an athlete, but I didn't look like Charles Atlas. He said, his second statement, which was hilarious considering he's the million-dollar man, is the following. The thing about steroids was I always, 
I was always afraid of them, and I finally had a doctor tell me about the effects, and that warned me right, right off of them. That was it for me with that stuff. The only other drug I ever took while I was wrestling was cocaine. Now, this doesn't sound like the million-dollar man, but I stopped doing cocaine because, it wasn't because I was cheap. I didn't want to spend the money on it. Think of that for one second. The million-dollar man whose whole focus in his career was money was too cheap to buy coke, hence why he stopped using it. I, I tell you, man, some of, some of these fucking stories that these wrestlers have, they write, the, they write themselves, man. They're fucking real, real tales of weirdness. I mean, Mick Foley always does a great job of capturing these stories in his books, but to hear it from some of these wrestlers, you'd be like, wow, that's some wild shit. Now, of course, as I said earlier in the broadcast, our, our buddy Hulk Hogan brother is on Twitter, brother, and he's answering the fans' questions, brother. Oh, brother. Uh, when asked about when when Hogan know, Hogan knows best will return, the fact that somebody asked him that and actually watched that show is ridiculous. He responded with, "It could be a new show about my positive new life with Jennifer TNA business, real friends, and starting over. Only real stuff, no haters." I swear, the older Hogan gets, the younger his fucking lingo gets. On heel Hogan coming back, he says, "Never say never." When asked about American Gladiators, he goes, no, the show was too expensive to produce, and when you can do the same number with a cheap reality show, it's a no-brainer. When asked about laying down for staying in WCW's Halloween Havoc 1999, he responds with, and I quote, those were whack times. That was the old Russo and the old me. It was all stupid. On Steve Austin turning down his WrestleMania challenge a few years ago, he responds with, he always said that if there was money to be made, let's do it. I thought he was serious. Would he bring Steve Austin to TNA because he was the biggest draw in wrestling history? Hogan's response, oh, is he? Uh, that's one thing about Hogan that always bugged me. He always believes his own hype. He, he really was, but he really just doesn't stop and say, fuck, I'm 60 years old and I wear a bandana. He never wakes up and says that. Or I wear tie-dyed T-shirts and I should have a walker. No, 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 not Hogan. That motherfucker drinks the fountain of youth. When asked about, what, did he ever snitch out Jesse Ventura to Vince McMahon about forming a union? I'm surprised he responded to this. He put, Vince already knew about it. I just said I didn't think it was a good idea. Jesse's a clown, and, and that's how the boys thought of him. He was running his mouth like usual, trying to get everyone on board. Whether he would be welcomed back in the WWE, he goes, all I can say is if there's money to be made, Vince is all business. If he would do anything different in his life, this actually was really crazy. He said he would get divorced instantly after Nick was born. I definitely got to say that the whole Linda McMahon situation, I mean Linda McMahon, um, Linda Hogan situation, I think that psychologically it just broke Hulk Hogan. Like his spirit is beyond broke, especially when he's given her so much alimony and she's fucking like a 21-year-old guy and doing all this shit with his money. The guy's practically a vegetable on two legs, and his wife is just spending every ounce of money that he's ever bled for. When asked about... Actually, here's, here's a really, really... Oh, actually, that was it. Everything else pretty much was just fucking formulaic questions. But um, one thing he did say about Randy Orton is that Randy Orton's one of the few guys in the business that has it figured out, and there are only a real small few that really get it. So definitely a notch um, on the belt for Randy Orton to get kudos from Hulk Hogan. And last but not least, Landscape's father recently spoke 
to the day.com and he said he was not happy with what Linda McMahon said. And um, he said the following, and I quote, I've been with him up to two different WWE functions where Linda McMahon came up to him and knew him by name. She disrespected him. She disrespected my family. Lance would have cut his arm off for Vince McMahon, but it wasn't there in return. He don't care anymore than the man in the moon for them. Other than that, it's all dollar signs. Of course, Linda McMahon's political campaign quickly put out a statement. WWE had nearly 600 employees and about 140 performers. And I think it's understandable that Linda may have not recollected every interaction she's had, particularly given the fact that she's personally met with thousands of voters since resigning her post at WWE in September. Linda's a very kind and sympathetic person, but she is human. It certainly wasn't Linda's intent to diminish any additional interaction she may have had. Translation, Linda McMahon isn't going to remember shit especially if your son is associated with drug use and he was a former performer. That's what that is in plain English. It's really crazy how, how, how politics work, and it's funny how, they, how they, kind of, they, they kind of parallel wrestling because it's basically cutting promos, good guys and bad guys, and the fan appeal about who's the most popular. The, the, the politics and wrestling really do share a lot in common, and it amuses me that a McMahon is actually going to be a part of politics considering how much politics play in wrestling. I'm going to take another commercial break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk some video games. We're going to talk some movies right after this. BornSouthern.com Extremely short commercial. We now return to your regular schedule program, My Take Radio. Rich, take it away. All right, let's talk some video games. First off, I want to talk about G4 a little bit. And the fact that I shit on G4 all the time. Their programming sucks. Their talking head commentators for all their quote-unquote game shows. High-paid models and well-dressed douches to an extent. One thing, and and I always will admit when shit is legit, they did a really great job on Attack of the Show interviewing James Cameron. I gotta call I gotta call it like I see it. There wasn't it wasn't fucking replete with dick jokes. It wasn't mired with, with oh look, it's Olivia Munn fucking up a line or Oh look at these tits. Yada yada yada. Nope. There was none of that. On the contrary, it ended up being Really well done, really well spoken, and they actually took the time to discuss the technology that went into the uh, 3D cameras that were used for filming Avatar. And that was, that was really, really cool. I really was actually impressed at the knowledge that was shown. I mean, don't get me wrong, there was probably ample show prep, there was probably ample preparation, but the fact is that they did a phenomenal job interviewing Cameron. Cameron appeared approachable. He appeared comfortable. And not for nothing, it's a huge feather in the cap of G4 to get a guy like James Cameron on one of their shows to discuss a technology that's basically revolutionized the landscape of filmmaking. The fact is, he was, like I said, very approachable. He did a very great job of it. And on top of that, it was G4, and they had James Cameron on there. This is a guy who's, he's done, you know, Leno, Letterman, 
Fallon. Um, he's been all over the place, especially with the huge Oscar push for Avatar. And like I said, a huge feather in G4's cap for not only having him on the show, but not making a mockery of his achievements. So in one of the few instances, I got to give him kudos. Got to give him kudos for that. They did really well. Now, see, here's what I really would like them to learn from this experience. You guys did such a great job. You guys appeared insightful, knowledgeable, and appreciative of the technology being presented. Why don't you do that with all your fucking shows? Not just, you know, not just the, the, the stroke job for James Cameron, but for so many other talented people out there. Why, why don't you talk to a guy like Edgar Wright, who has Scott Pilgrim, which is an homage to video games. I'm more than sure that his insight and, his, you know, his, his stories in terms of wanting to bring this project to life would, would be great for, for fans to see. You know, why don't you talk to um, guys like Todd McFarlane, guys like Rob Liefeld, who have all these projects. Rob Liefeld tweets daily about stuff going on with the Deadpool movie, which is, is relevant to the whole G4 fan base. Why don't you talk to the guys that formed Respawn Entertainment? Here's a good one. Why don't you talk to the guys from Jedi Mind Technologies, who um, the crew from Girl Gamer introduced me to, um, that are actually being sued by George Lucas for their technology, which allows you to play games and do things with just your mind and no controllers. Th these are things that you guys can discuss and do a really, uh, really good uh, presentation of. You guys have the platform to do it, but, you know, that's okay. We'll just keep catering to 12-year-olds with dick jokes. It, it, it's funny that out of, out of all the shit, out of all the diarrhea floating around in the G4 cesspool, there's one clean square of toilet paper, and that would be the James Cameron interview. So, like I said, kudos to them. Let's see how they fuck it up next week. Over the last few weeks, and I was really unsure about discussing this, there's been rumors that they were going to or have already started modding the PlayStation 3. Now, as of earlier this week, there is what's called a PS jailbreak. There's a site that claims that a USB solution to the, DS, to the PS3's protection screen, schemes exists, allowing users to back up games to the HDD, internal or external, and play them without a disc. It's a workaround they're making available at a price, of course, to the general public. It appears that the device is inserted into the console prior to a hard reboot and button combination, which at that point puts the PlayStation into debug mode, allowing unsigned code to run. If that's the case, it will indeed allow for the backing up of games too and to play games from an HDD, whether internal or external, as well as homebrew applications. The USB key will also allow unfettered access to the GPU, something that the protection system didn't even allow Linux to do prior to removal of the other OS option, which will allow other applications like Xbox Media Center to run on the PlayStation 3. I think that... PlayStation's become a really hard nut to crack, especially with stuff regarding modding. And it's really, really crazy that you're not advocating and putting it out there so blatantly, but you're really just standing on the top of the mountain and shouting from the heavens that you have bypassed PlayStation's copy protection strategy and their security strategy. I think that companies like this definitely, they, they're changing the game for sure. But you, you don't advocate shit like that because Sony's going to be ripe and ready to sue the shit off of you. 
It's ridiculous. They're really gonna they're really gonna come out there and go, yeah, we got this thing and it's so fucking awesome. And Sony's like, go ahead, go ahead and put it out for sale. We will sue the fuck out of you, and we will we will sue you into the dark ages. And that's pretty much what's gonna happen. And them putting this out there so blatantly because it's been it's been on the making its way through the through the tubes for the last I'd say about week and a half or so, and it's really started picking up steam this week. I think that the whole premise of, of mod chips, it, it, there's just not enough reward. The risk is too great. You know, your console can get blacklisted, especially with the fact that there's so much um, online dependency nowadays. You know, you've got to download your updates and your firmware updates and the PlayStation Store and everything needs an update that they're bound to see um, games being loaded off the hard drive, or there has to be markers that Sony has in place that they're going to see immediately that your console is is modded, and at which point they'll probably block you just like Xbox Live does. Then what? Now you got to call out of pocket for another three hundred dollars and buy a brand new console for what? To bootleg a, a game that's probably going to need to be burned on a Blu-ray disc that's twenty bucks. It's not worth it. I mean, back in the day with the PS2 and the Dreamcast and even the Xbox to an extent, it was fine. The media was cheap. And, you know, there were some games that you just had to bootleg. It's just the way it was, especially titles from Japan that weren't coming out in America. But the fact that this company's shouting it out so blatantly and throwing it on the web is just a recipe for disaster. And I have a feeling that Sony is going to quietly release another firmware update sooner rather than later that's going to protect the console from any sort of USB hacking scheme. Definitely something worth watching for sure. Of course, I want to talk a little bit about Epic Mickey because it's slowly approaching uh, release. I believe the release is going to be in November. Originally, the concept was discussed that you were going to be able to play as regular Mickey and as a more dark version of the character called Scrapper Mickey. And it was, it was told later on that focus groups, some people felt that it was pressure from Disney, um, forced Warren Spector to have the character removed. As such, it was act, he was, Warren Spector was actually questioned about that at Gamescom, and he provided the following. Let me start by saying I have never, and I will never, make a design change as a result of a focus group test. It has not happened at any point in my 27 years, and it will not happen now. I will quit if that happens. If you ever catch me doing that, that will be the last thing I will ever do in the, game, in the gaming business. What I have done is about three years ago when we first started thinking about this game, we did over a thousand versions of Mickey. I'm assuming that this is where it started. So we did a focus test because I had a thousand different looks for the character, and people just said, don't mess with Mickey. When you make a game, you, take, you make this creative box, and you try to figure out what fits in it. You can do anything with Mickey Mouse or any character. So I said, let's test the extremes. And there were things that were, that were too radical. Game fans, Mickey fans, they didn't want it to go that far. So three years ago, I said, all right, that's too radical. We're not going to go that far with Mickey. And I think I mentioned that at E3, and someone assumed that that's what happened this past Christmas. Warren Spector ended up getting rid of the scrapper design because of the focus test, which is not true. The idea of the scrapper Mickey went away because I personally didn't like it. There was no focus test, and if there was any focus test done in the fall, no one ever told me about it. It just didn't happen. I feel that the concept of, a, of, a, of an evil Mickey, um, definitely, especially when you look at the epic Mickey logos that were drawn initially, 
they weren't your regular run-of-the-mill Mickey Mouse, so that definitely gave people the idea that something like this was afoot. Personally, I wouldn't mind seeing that a little bit of a, of Mickey with attitude. I'm not telling you to fucking have, you know, Mickey walking around with a shiv and stabbing Donald Duck in the back or, you know, using garrot wire to kill the bad guys or plastic bag over the head like Manhunt. All I'm saying is adding a little edge to the character isn't a bad thing. I'm not talking about, um, you know, sadistic, violent edge, but edge on par with something like a Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, Sonic is family-friendly, but he has a little bit of, a, of an attitude, a little bit of an edge. And considering what you could do is allow portions of the game where, let's say, Mickey gets uh, touched by the ink, where he kind of turns into Scrapper Mickey and he gets mad that, you know, shit is happening, almost like an invincibility mode. Really, really brief. I think that that concept, there's really nothing wrong with it. And I think that for people to complain about, sometimes you've got to think a little bit outside of the box. I'm, like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying to turn Mickey into the fucking Terminator, but a little bit of a hard edge, especially in this day and age, isn't a bad thing. I mean, people respond to that. It's a changing of the times, and it's only for a fucking game. It's, I mean, I'm sure Warren Spector, his rationale is legit, and, and that's what he's going with. But the idea of, of a more uh, rough-and-tumble Mickey Mouse character, definitely not a negative in my book, for sure. But sometimes, you know, the, the, the crowds and, and the focus groups have more to say about it. I think, again, the concept of a scrapper Mickey, as he was called, definitely not totally gone. And who knows, if they do an epic Mickey 2, we may see that. And people's... Uh, uh, preconceived notions on the character may have changed a little bit, and they wouldn't mind seeing a little bit of a more badass Mickey for sure. Nonetheless, moving on, of course, Plants vs. Zombies coming out on Xbox Live in September. It's on the iPad. It's on the PC. It's super fucking addictive. If you haven't played it, you should check it out. I've, I've played every interpretation on the computer. Um, I've played it on the iPad, I'll go into fucking um, the Apple Store and play it on the iPad for at least 20 or 30 minutes before I go back to work. It is a really simplistic and engaging game um, from the tower defense genre. And, of course, it's going to be making its debut on Xbox Live. But here's a kicker. PopCap announced today that the game is going to also be ported to the DS in January and that the game's going to cost you 20 bucks. You're going to get the adventure mode, survival mode, and puzzle mode along with minigames, which have already been seen in previous ber versions of the game. So definitely something that's going to be awesome for sure. I think that Plants vs. Zombies is definitely very unique in execution. If you pick up the Game of the Year edition, it's pretty cool that you can create your own zombies that appear in the game. And I think if you add something like that to the Xbox Live or the Nintendo DS component, it's going to be definitely something of interest for people to create these really cool zombies that you'll be able to use in the game. So props to PopCap for putting it on a console that is definitely going to benefit from a game like this just because it's such a quick and easy game you can play at any time that on a DS, again, it's a no-brainer. In some Crackdown 2 news, there's going to be some content, some downloadable content that's going to be coming out called the Toy Box downloadable content. You're going to have two versions, free and paid. The free version is going to include 
Keys to the City, which lets players run in God Mode with infinite ammo and more. It'll also give you the thruster ability for players that have maxed out all their abilities and a multiplayer vehicle tag mode. The paid version, which is going to be 560 Microsoft points, you're going to get two new vehicles, the Agency ATV and the Squad Chopper, along with five new items, the Mass Driver, portable launch pads, stickler grenades, thrusters, and mags. The premium toy box content also includes 10 new achievements and two new Avatar Awards. No release date has been announced yet, but you can definitely be on the lookout for that in the next few weeks. Sega also announced earlier today that they will be releasing a demo version of Vanquish, which we actually have a trailer for that on MyTakeRadio.com, um, for the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3 on August 31st. That's the same day as the release of the retail version. The demo is going to let players choose one level from the two levels of either casual or normal mode while jumping in the suit of Sam, a U.S. government agent, as they try to gain ownership of the planet's remaining energy sources. The problem is Russia wants them too. That's pretty much the main storyline. Players will have a huge arsenal of weaponry and upgrades at their disposal, as well as the ability to hijack walkers or use the suit's unique boost and AR mode to take down robots. The demo, of course, is going to climax with a formidable boss, Argus, which you will need to use all your skills to defeat. So August 31st, you'll be able to play the demo for Vanquish. Now, over the last few weeks, and I know this has definitely split um, the listeners in regards to whether they agree or disagree, over the last few weeks I've discussed um, publishers putting in um, almost surcharges to allow um, online access to games that are purchased used. This has happened with UFC Undisputed 2009, where if you purchase uh, uh, 2010, I should say, where if you buy the game used, in order for you to use the online component, you would have to pay $10 or $5 in some cases. This same thing has been happening with Tiger Woods. It's also going to be happening with SmackDown vs. Raw 2011. And it seems to be um, a, a measure being put in place by publishers that feel that GameStop is making 100% of the profit on used games and the publishers are not seeing any revenue. Now, again, this is where the, where, where the opinions get split. The publishers are entitled to make money for their game. On the same token, you make your money completely when you buy the game new. So, uh, again, it, it, it's a, it's a, it, it works both ways and it's really crazy that it's going to happen. And it's going to be even crazier that it's going to be happening with a first-party publisher, that being Sony. Um, started by Electronic Arts and picked up by Ubisoft and THQ, the online pass comes only with new games that allow players to play online by entering a code given with a game. This strategy is used to help quell used game sales by charging these game buyers more money for the same content. While talking to Game Industry Biz, Andrew House, president of Sony Europe, said the company is considering the pass for first-party titles. On the principle of making online portions of the game available or unlocked from the disc-based release for a fee, we're broadly supportive of that, and we're exploring actively the same option for our own content. Even though Sony supports the idea of the online pass, they don't support charging for monthly online play, which is why Bobby Kotick would like, which is what Bobby Kotick would like for the Call of Duty series. He actually wants to charge for used copies of the game uh, monthly to allow you to play, which is ridiculous. In terms of just the charge for basic online play, that's something we have to talk about 
a lot more, and we have to struggle because we feel very vindicated and base a lot of the success on PSN, a 70% connection rate across consoles on the fact that we've removed the major, the major initial barrier to entry. This is actually being put out there because SOCOM 4 may require the online pass next year to play. Again, I can understand where the publishers want to make money from the used market, but it, it, it really is a disservice to the gamer that buys the game outright used and pays the price for it because, you know, economic hardship, maybe the game isn't that great. And, you know, it doesn't warrant $60. You've got to look at that, too. If a publisher puts out a game that's, uh, that's not that great, and you say to yourself, hey, I'll buy it on the next go-around, or I'll pick it up used. You'll pick it up used from somebody like Gamefly or somebody like GameStop or even Target who's getting into used games, and before you know it, oh, yeah, you want to go online? Ten bucks. This poor kid or this poor girl or this poor young teenager or poor-ass adult with no job or with a, a low-paying job thought they were saving money, but they end up paying more. Think about this. You buy a brand-new game from GameStop, $59.99. You buy a used game from RapeStop, $54.99. Now, think about it. You pay $54.99, you go home, you play the game to go online. Oh, please pay $10 for online support. You just paid $64.99 for a game that is used. That is, that's where the issue lies. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to want to go to war with these used game sales, with these used game retailers, and what they don't realize is that stores like Best Buy, Walmart, Target, every few weeks, what do they do? They put discounts on a lot of these new games that just came out. So before you know it, that new game that was 60 bucks might be 40 bucks. The consumer's still going to, your new game is still going to get sold. Then what? Are you going to complain that retailers are dropping the games to 40 bucks? or $29.99, are you going to complain now that you're not making enough revenue? You see what I'm saying? I understand both sides of the argument, but of course I've got to put the needs of the consumer and the needs of the gaming audience first, because as a gamer and a, as a person that has a job, I understand the need to be wanting, you know, the necessity to be paid for your talents, which I understand from the publisher's standpoint. But, as a, but just as a, as a person on the grind, I just want to buy my game and go home and play it. And I just want to turn it on, go online if I'm going to go online, and call it a day, even if it's to go online once or twice. This whole online component system, like I can understand a game like Madden, you pay 10 bucks for it, used, and they ask you for 5 So you end up paying 15 for the game. No biggie because the, the value of the game depreciates very quickly. But GameStop sells their used games, you know, $54.99, maybe $49.99, if you're charging $49.99 for a used title and then 10 bucks more for online content, you're paying the price of a new game. So for that, you'll just wait for the price to drop for a new title. It, it's, it's really so nuts that it's gotten to this, to this crazy level where everybody's just, you know, the publishers are trying to fight against the used game retailers and the retailers are trying to find new and innovative ways to fuck the consumer. At the end of the day, Everybody loses. All right, we're going to bring in our next caller. Ark, what's going on? Welcome back. Hello, how are you today? I'm good. What's going on? Well, I figured I'd uh, throw in my two cents on this discussion. What do you got? 
Well, a couple of years ago in a previous relationship, uh, we were thinking about opening a video game store, and we were thinking about this exact same thing. We really wanted to um, somehow give back to the publishers and everything for coming out, you know, because GameStop shtick, you know, they're, whole, it's, they're essentially a pawn shop. If you're, you know, well, okay, I can't say that. But they, they're treated as, as a one sometimes, depending on what state you're in. When I used to uh, work at one in Massachusetts, they had to take um, whatever stock you had, and you had to put it in the back and wait six weeks before you could put it on the floor to make sure it wasn't stolen. Like The same procedures as pawn shops do sometimes. But um, what I'm getting at, though, is um, we, were, we were trying to figure out a way to where everyone wins because I'm for the publishers, you know, getting compensated for, for, for what yep. they created. And in addition to that, this would be a great way, like if they were to somehow tag on, like, you know, a small fee, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about the $10 thing, but if they could tag on a small fee just to get some kind of feedback to see what games keep selling even after they're no longer produced. They can get an idea of what the, what, what the user base wants. You know, like they're, like they're essentially paying, you know, for that kind of feature or, you know, they're getting that kind of information. But we could never figure out a way how everyone would win <laughs> with the whole concept because, you know, people don't want to pay a whole shit ton of money for um, used games. Well, I, and you know, it's funny. I've been, I've been discussing this a lot with Josh who calls into the show and he, he actually mentioned two possible solutions. It's like if the publishers are so hard up about fucking selling the games used or selling them new and not making any money, then why don't they sell the games directly? Why don't the publishers open up a store or join together and open up their own store where the revenue strictly for the publisher? Why don't they do that? You know, why, just, why, don't, why not have the publisher say, all right, you want to buy Madden 2011, go to EA.com and buy the game directly, and, you know, give, give the customer some incentive to buy it directly from you guys. That's true. That's very true. Why not just doesn't do that Capcom shit? Do that? Doesn't, doesn't Capcom, can't you buy your games directly from Capcom? You can buy some games and accessories directly from Capcom. I mean, Red Octane used to do it with Guitar Hero stuff, too, back in the day. It, right. It's really, it, it's gotten to that point where it's like, all right, everybody obviously wants to make a buck, then why don't the publishers just do it that way? Oh, yeah, you're going to have to create your own store. That requires money. Then what? You're, you're going you're gonna to charge people on the shipping? If you want to avoid this type of a hassle, then just make everything, you know, online-based from the cloud. Just like your PlayStation Network games, your Xbox Live titles, just release all the games directly through the console's online services and eliminate the fucking retail if, you're, if you guys are that serious and that upset about it. That's very true. But, you know, with, with the way games are going now, you know, with, with, with the popularity of uh, downloadable content and downloadable games, period, I don't think GameStop's going to be around for much longer. I give them another five years. They're going go to go the route of Blockbuster. Well, the funny thing is now more, you know, Best Buy did a, 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 bit, of, a, a bit of soft testing, um, buying and selling used games. Um, it was met with a mixed response. This week uh -huh. it was announced that, tar that Target was going to get into buying and selling used games. I thought, um, wasn't there a different, no, um, 
What retailer did that too? There was another Seven, one. Seven Eleven was selling games too. That's just strange. <laughs> yeah. We actually went to it. Go ahead. I was going to say there was an article on Kotaku recently about um, uh, GameStop is putting all of this money into the store of the future, and it, it's just going to amount to nothing essentially. So let me see if I can find that link for you. It's crazy because, you know, we we actually, um, in some of our travels, myself, Andrea, and Slick went into a play-and-trade. This was the first time we ever went into a play-and-trade, and, trade. and um, their prices were, were fairly fairly straightforward. You know, the games, new games were 60 bucks. Used games had a very nice price point, you know, like, the, the, like some of the newer titles were, uh, you know, low 40s, you know, maybe upper 40s. But they never crossed into that over, you know, that 50 and up threshold. I don't know if it was because the store had just opened, but it seemed a bit more inviting, and it was a bit more, it was a bit more suitable and gamer friendly. I think to an oh, extent, yeah. GameStop lost the necessity to be gamer friendly when they realized that they made so much money just on selling games in general. Oh yeah. The play and trade by me, they're, they're absolutely fantastic. I've gotten so many deals from them. Hell, they even text me when they get deals. Like, they have something where they can text you when, they're, when they have sales going on right then and there. And if you bring that text in, they'll give you that, that, that deal. If you're, like, you know, somebody who wants to give up your, your cell phone for that. But, um, yeah, I've gotten, uh, I've gotten copies of, um, uh, what was it, Lego Batman and Overlord, like, uh, I want to say, like, six months ago. I got them both for $20 total. You know, every, you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll get a really good deal from them with some games that, you know, I've been itching to play but not really sure. Okay, if I plunk down $10 on each of them, eh, that's not so bad. Well, you know what I like, too, and, and Slick brought it to my attention. He reminded me, the, uh, you know, the allowance that, they can, that you can try before you buy, which is, which is fairly nice because sometimes you go in there, you'll ask a GameStop employee, hey, is this game good? Yeah, it's all right. Then you buy it, you go home, it sucks a fat dick. Then you got to go back and sell it back to them for three bucks after you paid thirty. Yeah. You know, I like I like to, I like to try and buy. I also like you know having the three sixties or or other consoles linked for you to be able to test stuff out with friends and even purchasing playing time. You know, it, it, it's a more friendly and more inviting atmosphere. I definitely like their presentation. The store wasn't a hundred percent operational yet, but. Right. Definitely, definitely a place that I can see myself dropping some coin in the near future for sure. Definitely a better alternative game to GameStop because they don't they don't try to shove any. Uh, you want a pre-order? <laughs> they don't shove any of that down your throat or nothing. Yep. Now, I actually I actually gave the guy the business about that because he walked up to him like, hey, you know, can I help you? And I'm like, oh, just checking you out and stuff and. He kind of knew, you know, I kind of was a bit abrasive just because I expected the, uh, the rape stop uh, typical shtick. But he, he actually said, he's like, oh, I used to work for the other video game retailer. And he's like, <laughs> I understand. He's like, I understand your frustration and, you know, where it stems from. So it, it was definitely, definitely refreshing that, that they know that people are not fans of their guerrilla their gorilla sales tactics. Well, you know, that's very smart of them to hire ex-employees, too, because at least they have the uh, retail know-how, and they could probably, you know, just get the information from there. What did customers not like? (laughs) Well, (laughs) they don't like it when you shove shit down their throat. Nope. 
and try and sell you, and you know, tell you the sh- sell you the shitty rag too. But uh, back to, um, like, just the actual topic on hand, though, I mean, as far as publishers getting any kind of compensation, like, I am all for it. I am. Because I think that's a great way for them to know just what games are selling, even after they're no longer being made. That way they can know, because I think there's got to be some way, you know, for them to tally, oh, okay, copies of Psychonauts are flying off the shelves. Maybe we should make more copies of that, you know, or, or something relevant to that, you know what I mean? I agree. So. I agree the publisher should be compensated. I just I just have, have a lot of issue with the compensation coming, especially with this really rough economy coming at the expense of, of us, the, the gaming community, because, you know, games are, games are up there. They're 60 bucks, and then, you know, limited editions, special controllers, fucking vibrating sleeves, Street Fighter Snuggies. You, you know, you want to buy all this shit. <laughs> they want us to buy all... They want us to buy all this shit, and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, if you even attempt to buy this game used, you've got to pay us an extra 10 bucks to go online. See, that's where I get upset, because as a, as a consumer, it's like, fuck, man, I've got to buy more shit? Right. <sighs> but we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it plays out in the, in, over the next few months. We'll see if Sony pulls the trigger and does it, because if they're the first-party publisher to do it, I'm more than sure if people don't complain too much, other publishers are going to follow suit. Right. I'll definitely be keeping a close eye on that one, too. There you go. Thanks for the call. Not a problem, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. Later. All right. Here's a, here's a tasty nugget of information. It seems that Nintendo, with their 3DS technology and their non-requirement for 3D glasses, has actually started a brand-new movement. It seems that Toshiba is going to go into business for themselves and try their attempt at creating a 3D TV that will not require special glasses. Once again, Nintendo revolutionizing the industry, one small step at a time. Toshiba announced today that they're working on a new technology that will allow 3D TV viewing without the special need for glasses. Spokesperson Yuko Sagahara confirmed that the technology was in development but would not comment on a report that the TVs would be available by the end of the year. He stated, many people don't like to wear glasses to watch TV for long periods of time, especially people who must wear 3D glasses over regular glasses. Although the technology to watch 3D TV without glasses already exists, it requires that the viewer sit or stand in specific spots and provides a much lower image quality. Toshiba is striving to bring the 1080p 240Hz refresh rate to existing 3D-ready televisions that will no longer require eyeglasses. Well, well, 3D eyeglasses. I think that Nintendo did something very unique in their presentation with the 3DS, and I have a feeling that in, in, showing, in showcasing that technology and showing that it can be done, it's definitely opened the eyes to certain manufacturers to go forth and, and try, their, try using that technology on a larger scale. I honestly think that it's, a, it's really interesting, and I want to see how that develops, just because I've seen these new 3D televisions, and they're really nice. I just don't like some of the glasses that they make you wear. The glasses look really stupid in some cases, or they're just highly uncomfortable, over-prolonged wear. I think moving into 3D without glasses and pulling it off appropriately is going to definitely add a bit more depth to 3D and not just make it more of a gimmick, but actually make it more of a viable entertainment source. Because imagine that, you sit there and you get to experience all these great 3D effects 
without having to put on a pair of dinky glasses that cost 300 bucks and need to be recharged. But, of course, in doing that, Toshiba also is going at war with companies that already have TVs out that require glasses. And, of course, there's going to be a lot of detractors and a lot of back and forth as the other companies follow suit and embrace this technology. This is something that we definitely got to keep an eye on for sure instead of, um, you know, depending on 3D TVs with glasses. I'm definitely gonna, not going to buy a 3D TV anytime soon, especially with this announcement, because it opens you up to the possibility that the technology is going to become obsolete fairly quickly. We got some Castlevania Lords of Shadow news. PlayStation 3 owners, you guys are going to get well taken care of, but 360 owners, you guys will have to do the old disc swap for the upcoming Castlevania Lords of Shadow, much like Final Fantasy. After players progress through the first disc and switch to the second, they will have to switch back to the first anytime they want to revisit earlier levels to get collectibles or beat challenges. There was a way around the problem, though. By installing the first disc onto the 360, players won't have to switch once they move to disc 2. This is a good way to get around the smaller storage size that DVDs offer. This was one reason why a lot of people definitely shied away from Final Fantasy on the 360 because it couldn't be contained on, on one disc. It, I, this is going to be interesting to watch because if the game has really high review scores, I have a feeling that the majority of the sales are going to go to the PS3, which of course is good for, for the PlayStation 3 you know, console initiative, that they can load all their games on Blu-rays while Microsoft still has to rely on DVDs. Again, Microsoft puts out great games, but things like this definitely are going to frustrate gamers, especially gamers that have smaller hard drives, and if the disc size for these games is, is substantially high, it's definitely going to get old really quick. So definitely a feather in the cap for Sony fans that are going to be able to play Lords of Shadow without having to switch discs. So definitely something to keep an eye out, and it's definitely going to be influencing the purchase of this game for a lot of our listeners for sure. Xbox owners are also going to get a new fall dashboard update, which will be improving voice communication features on Xbox Live. According to Jerry Johnson, a product unit manager, he said the new upgrade will make improvements to the codec and audio infrastructure. This is being done to try and help fix the crackle sound that some players hear over the headset when talking to each other. So I have a feeling that that fall update, besides the, the of course, the voice communication features, will be probably including the upcoming Connect features, which will probably be dropping late October just because the Connect is scheduled to be released in stores at some time in November. So definitely interesting for, for Xbox 360 owners. They got, they, they're really just, for, for one bad thing, they get a good thing. With the Connect update, the new avatars, I actually put a picture of the upcoming Connect-ready avatars on the MyTake Radio fan page, so definitely check that out for sure. And uh, we got two last bits of news that I want to discuss. Uh, the PSP Go, of course, was a total bomb. They were Sony's attempt at shying away from using physical media. Everybody expects for in the next PlayStation console the physical media to be secondary and it all be based on downloadable video games from the cloud. Kaz Harai said that a digital-only format is still at least 10 years away. He said the following, we do business in parts of the world where network infrastructure isn't as robust as one would hope. There's always going to be a requirement for businesses of our size and scope to have a physical medium. To have everything that will be downloaded in two years, three years, or even ten years from now is taking it a little bit to the extreme. 
One reason Harai said this future is so far away may be the PSP Go. The download-only handheld has not performed up to the standards of the regular PSP and has had poor sales numbers since release. I, I, can, I can really answer that for Kaz Harai real easily. The PSP Go is way too fucking expensive. How about that? When you can get the same enjoyment from a physical medium for the same console that does the same shit and pay far less money, I'm going to go with the physical medium. Besides the fact, Sony continues to try and shoot themselves in the foot coming up with all these crazy fucking harebrained schemes to implement into consoles. I have an idea that will make it very accessible for everybody. Take your PS3. You got your online store, your downloadable content, your downloadable games. You got your disc-based content, your disc-based games, your Blu-rays, yada, yada, yada. Why not, for the next PSP, go with a medium that's easily accessible and fairly cheap? Why don't you go with mini-DVDs? They're still DVDs. They can be accessed from a computer because you can put a mini-DVD in a computer. And it's, it's something that, that's easier to just handle instead of this proprietary medium, this UMD shit. Again... They wanted to come up with a proprietary format to probably stop piracy. Obviously, they failed because piracy runs rampant with PSP owners, whether it's emulators, whether it's games, whether it's movies. It's, it's really something that they just couldn't stop with the console. Why not use a medium that's a bit more, a bit more robust and, and just a bit more accessible and available? Slick makes a valid point. He says in the chat that the mini DVD system can easily be hacked, at which point um, my nephew mentions the fact that the PSP can be hacked as it is. They really should just give up trying to fight piracy on this console. It exists just like it exists on the DS. If you make engaging content and great games, people will buy them. But if you expect people to pay the, almost the equivalent of a new PlayStation game of 50 bucks for a portable handheld game, you're sadly mistaken. The sweet spot is always going to be $29.99 or even $34.99 in some cases for Nintendo. I think Sony should really rethink their strategy for any upcoming PSP, make it almost like a mini PS3, have a strong online component, make it Wi-Fi ready. If you want to throw 3G in there because of Android or whatever the fuck you're going to do, throw it in there. Make a console that's that's gamer-friendly, easily accessible, and you can actually do cool shit with. One of the reasons why you're playing fucking third banana to the iPod Touch and the iPhone is the, is, the easy, is the ease of the interface and the fact that you can get stuff on there with relative ease. You want to throw a movie on your iPhone? You can download Handbrake or any of the other thousand converters, burn it, put it in iTunes, and you're done. With Sony, you've got to get this media smart shit, and yada, yada, yada. It's, it becomes a little bit too cumbersome when all people have to do is use Handbrake and convert it to PSP. It's a no-brainer. It's fucking simple. But Sony seems to always want to fucking challenge themselves and outdo themselves, and sometimes they end up shooting themselves in the foot. And then the gamers tell them, pretty much, I'm not going to pay for your shit. Shove them up your ass. That's what's happening with the PSP Go. When I saw it, I was like, wow, this is really cool looking. It's really nice. It's pocket-friendly. It's cool that you can download the games from the cloud. That's nice. Then I looked at the price, and I'm like, nobody's going to pay nearly $300 for this shit. It's absurd. It was, it, it was really absurd. It was a, a very beautiful piece of hardware when you saw it. 
much like any other stuff Sony makes. But then the price point definitely was a problem, on top of the fact that you still had your existing PSP out there that played the same games and was substantially cheaper. If you were going towards the PSP Go, you should have added you know, phone functionality and things of that nature to, to warrant the $260 price point. It's really absurd. And, you know, mini-DVD, man, that's what you got to do, Sony, mini-DVD, so people can get mini-DVD discs if they want and burn movies to them and put them in their, put them in their PSP Go. You're not going to stop fucking piracy. It's impossible. What you got to do is put out great titles so that people don't mind spending 30 bucks to buy them. That's why Nintendo doesn't lose that much money on piracy, because they put out a whole bunch of really great games. <sighs> Fucking Sony, man. Last but not least, I want to talk a little bit about Apple, too. And um, I got about an hour and 20 minutes of show left, and there's a lot of movie news, so I'm going to make this brief. Apple is going to be making a major announcement September 1st in San Francisco. Of course, speculation is running wild. Cloud-based music service has been discussed. Uh, new iPods have been discussed, um, and also a new Apple TV service with the ability to rent content uh, from Disney, CBS, and Fox, and other broadcasters for 99 cents. The iPod Touch is rumored to have front and rear-facing cameras to support Apple's FaceTime video calling feature. So basically, a new iPod that's basically an iPhone 4 without the iPhone, without the iPhone component. Not totally a terrible thing. One reason why this is kind of in the gaming news is for the same thing that I usually include Apple stuff in the gaming news because there's still a huge market for casual games from the Apple marketplace. And if you make the iPhone, well, the iPod Touch as powerful as the iPhone, it's going to allow more powerful games to make their way onto pretty much a multi-purpose device, which is what the iPod Touch is slowly becoming. Um, video cameras, accelerometers, all that stuff, Pretty soon that's going to be integrated into online play, whether it's you playing against somebody and being able to video chat with them during gameplay over Bluetooth. It's definitely an interesting thing to watch just because these are things that are going to slowly move Apple up quietly into the second spot and solidify it unless Sony does something major to get back in the good graces of the public and allow them to, you know, move some handhelds. Because right now Nintendo's not going anywhere, so the least they can do is try and protect themselves from getting raped by Apple. We'll see how it pans out. I am going to take a quick commercial break, and we're going to come back and talk a shitload about movies. Stay there. What if it's on tonight, even? Tonight at 10 on your local news. I said to Jesus, Jesus, can you say this is the deal of the century, people? I'm telling you. So Jason, uh, what, what, I mean, what, what are we doing tonight? Tumbling with tumbleweed, Tuesday nights at 10 p.m. BlogTalkRadio.com, Eastern Standard Time. Do you even know, Jason? Jason, are you there? All right, let's talk some movies, and we got a lot to discuss. First off, got to talk about X-Men: First Class because. There's always news about it. This seems to be the new buzz thing uh, right up there with the Avengers, Thor, Captain America. It seems X-Men First Class is taking center stage, um, definitely getting more news coverage than the upcoming Spider-Man reboot. Nonetheless, Brian Stringer spoke with Aided Cool News about a whole host of new plans for X-Men First Class. 
He actually gave out a lot of real cool plot points. The film is going to be based in the 60s with JFK as president. The civil rights movement will be at its peak, and we'll see the meeting of Charles Xavier and Eric Lenscher and see them dream of a future where man and mutant cohabitate peacefully. Singer revealed the following tidbits. The two leads will be in their late 20s. Xavier will not be in his wheelchair, but we'll find out how he ends up in one. He will also have hair. Xavier and Lenscher will create the first X-Men together. The film is not based on the first-class comic, but it is a new beginning for the franchise. Matthew Vaughn was technologically inspired by James Bond technology from the 60s, which you're going to see. The costumes are going to be more comic bookish as opposed to how they were in other movies. Neither Cyclops or Jean Grey are in this movie, but Havoc is, which is Cyclops' brother, for those that don't know. Kevin Bacon will be playing Sebastian Shaw, and the Hellfire Club will be involved in some way. The movie will begin with Xavier at the Oxford Academy, and he's still working on adding more characters to the film. Sounds promising. I definitely see them playing on the, on the parallels of the civil rights movement, which is something that um, Kai from Northeast Wasteland discussed during his last appearance on the show, which was the Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King dynamic, which exists pretty much in Charles Xavier and Magneto. Basically, Magneto was supposed to be the Malcolm X, more militant, uh, more in-your-face, Professor Xavier was supposed to be the equivalent of Martin Luther King, peaceful, um, trying to work with the human race and embracing humankind as opposed to trying to be um, more uh, thinking of them as a race of people that should be subjugated. So definitely interesting, interesting that they're going to go with that parallel. A couple of things. If you're thinking of X-Men first class, the, the core X-Men when they were first announced were Iceman, Jean Grey, Beast, Angel, Cyclops. Later on, joined by Colossus, Wolverine, and those other characters. Not having Cyclops in the film, a little, a little against that, just because Cyclops is, is so crucial in X-Men Origins. It's, it's really crazy that they want to go this route. I understand they want to give the origins of the X-Men and they want to add all these younger characters because it opens the door to a totally new franchise, but you can't totally erase some of the characters that are crucial for the origin stories, like Jean Grey. Jean Grey is huge in, in, in the young X-Men stories, as is Cyclops. I mean, if you're going to go with Havoc and those guys, that's fine, but you can't call them X-Men. You've got to call them New Mutants or, you know, Generation X or something. You can't use the X-Men name to, to embody that when so many core characters are missing. You know, we're not even, they haven't been even discussed a young Storm. Is there going to be a young Storm in the movie? What about a young Colossus? Nothing. Iceman? Maybe. How about Angel? Core member. Beast is going to be in there. But, but again, it's like they're, they're mishmashing all these different characters into one storyline. Like, what does young Mystique really have to do with the X-Men? How, how crucial is her character? I understand you want to go with Emma Frost for the Hellfire Club, and that's, the, that's important, but Slick made a valid point. Cyclops is the X-Men. Him and Wolverine are the, are the foundations, as is Jean Grey. They are the trinity of the group. And it, it's I can understand them leaving Wolverine out, which is fine, because Wolverine ended up coming into the X-Men far later, but if you're going to discuss the origins of the group, 
and you want to go that far back to young Charles Xavier and young Magneto, then there, there's still got to be a little bit of fan service in there keeping those, those crucial characters in the mix. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm slightly torn, but I'm leaning more towards them trying to rewrite history that, for all intents and purposes, can translate well into screen. Again, a wait-and-see approach for sure. Let's talk some box office numbers. The Expendables was number one for the second week in a row. $16.5 million, which is the standard 50% drop. The film made $64.9 million in two weeks on an $82 million budget. I'm more than sure it's going to meet it. Opening number two was a shocker for me, was the parody film Vampire Suck. It brought in $12.2 million in its first opening weekend, making it the highest grossing film of the new releases. The film opened on Wednesday and has thus far pulled in $18.6 million on a $20 million budget. Dropping down to number three was Eat, Pray, Love. It brought in $12 million, $47.1 million total on a budget of $60 million. Lottery Ticket opened at number four, bringing in $11.1 million. The film had a $17 million budget. I'm more than sure it's going to be successful. The other guys dropped to number five, $10.1 million. It's made $88.2 million on a $100 million budget. Not super successful, but that can always be made up in DVDs and Blu-rays. The horror film Piranha, which Slick reviewed on MyTakeRadio.com, you should definitely check out his review, opened at number six with a disappointing $10 million. It's the lowest grossing 3D film to put in wide release this year. The film had a budget of $24 million. Boy, do I have a news story for you guys about that. Opening at number seven was Nanny McPhee Returns. Nobody gives a fuck about this movie, but it opened up $8.3 million. The gross was a little bit more uh, than half the original film. It had a $35 million budget. The Jennifer Aniston comedy The Switch, which is a total fucking bomb. Jennifer Aniston should just quit acting. Uh, $9.1 million. And last but not least, Inception was at number nine, $7.6 million. It's made $261.8 on a $150 million budget. And last but not least, the well-popular and well-acclaimed Scott Pilgrim vs. the World dropped to number 10, earning $5 million. It made $20.7 million on a budget of $60 million. Now, I'm sure a lot of you guys are definitely upset at the Scott Pilgrim drop. I will tell you this. I was also upset. Regardless of how, what you guys read on my review, I did enjoy the movie. Michael Sarah still sucks. But the movie was enjoyable. What upsets me is the fact that it was dethroned and knocked down so many pegs by such gems as Vampire Suck, The Lottery Ticket, Piranha, which I said it was going to do, Nanny McPhee, even The Switch is a fucking bomb. I can understand you losing to Inception because that movie was good. I can understand you losing to the other guys. That's fine. The Expendables, just because there's still a lot of testosterone in people's systems. But it dropped to number 10. It boggles my mind, and it really is a death knell for original and creative filmmaking. Scott Pilgrim was based on a comic book. Yes. Scott Pilgrim was a huge, huge homage to video games. Yes. Michael Sarah's a dork. Yes. Was the movie great? 
Yes, it was. Were the, was the fight choreography great? Yes, it was. Was the storyline engaging? Absolutely. Did you laugh? More than once. It, it, really, it really upsets me that it had to drop that far down. You placed lower than Nanny McPhee. Nanny fucking McPhee beat Scott Pilgrim. We, we really are. Our taste in movies as a society, how do you lose to lottery ticket? Which looks remotely amusing, but not amusing enough to be placed in the top three. It's absurd. Uh, it, it really is sad. It really is sad that such creative and imaginative filmmaking has, has just fucking taken a backseat to, you know, subpar black comedies and fucking lame bromance and romance comedies that come out that just fucking, they're abysmal. And then Vampire Suck comes out of nowhere. It, this is the same guys that made Disaster Movie. They made Disaster Movie. That's all I got to tell you. You make Disaster Movie, then you spoof vampires, which everybody's done, and you, and you fucking just smash poor Scott Pilgrim to number 10. Uh, oh, looks like we got a caller. Slick, you're on the air. What's up, man? All right, dude. Number 10. We discussed this last week. I told you that Piranha was going to definitely be up there, which it was. You also saw Piranha. You understand why it is up there and the rationale behind it. Now, as someone who went to see Scott Pilgrim twice, you can attest to the fact that it is a severe, di a severe injustice that this movie's this far down. You know it's going to be out of the theater in fucking two weeks now. Maybe soon. Yeah. Because you think about movies like Predators, that's gone. Airbender's pretty much gone. And that actually made a little bit of money. Not enough, but... You, you have this fantastic little movie that, you know... Geeks and nerds would absolutely love. And, you know, it's a, a great movie for, for a bunch of friends to go see. And it's just a good movie, period. You have fucking Nanny McPhee beating, beating it out. Nanny McPhee looks like some hooker in the street that got stomped in the face. She has, like, oh, a boy. piece of cancer and AIDS hanging off her face and, like, three teeth in her head. And oh. it's like, this movie's even, it's, it's a kid movie, and it's even beating out things like Despicable Me which would be like a decent movie. And I'm like, I'm just dumbfounded. I'm the, I'll even go deeper than that. Let's put Scott Pilgrim on the side for a second because I already went crazy about that last week. Right. You have a movie, Piranha 3D, which by no means is Oscar-worthy. Oscar no, it's sir. Fantastically bad. Like, it was... An awful movie, but it's one of those movies that's so bad that it's great. Like Snakes on and a Plane. You have, and you have this flaming bag of shit named Vampire Sucks in number two. Yep. There's no reason on God's green earth that, one, Vampire Sucks should be number two in the box office, and two, it should be making more money than Piranha 3D. 
because Piranha 3D is one of those great old B-movies from the 80s that you catch on Cinemax at 3 in the morning. It actually went back to the old style of making horror movies where it's not this torture porn bullshit like Saw 3D. It's not even scary. It's just gross. And it actually tries to scare you and make you laugh at the same time. It's like a movie yeah, everybody needs to see. Nobody needs to fucking see Vampire Suck. Well, you know what? This is this is. I'll I'll break it down to you, and 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 here's where you're gonna see uh, some crazy shit. Going down the list, Vampire Suck made twelve point two. What separated that from Eat, Pray, Love for the number two stop spot was nothing. Twelve point two versus twelve million. How how crazy is that? Here's a here's a, a an even crazier number. Piranha 3D in the opening weekend made $10 million. It made double what Scott Pilgrim made. Yep. So in looking at that, there's a couple of things that are going on. There's still people that obviously haven't seen the other guys. There's also people that still haven't seen Inception or are seeing it repeated times because it's so quote-unquote deep, which is fine. Then you've got movies like The Lottery Ticket, The Switch, Nanny McPhee is a kid's movie. Kid's movies are always going to do well. But the the fact that a movie made by the same guys who made Disaster Movie. Like, I could understand if Scott Pilgrim placed number 10 and your, and your box office numbers were The Expendables, Jackass 3D, you know, Saw 3D, a re-release of Avatar. Like, if it was competing against shit on that level, I can understand. But you're losing to movies that are the equivalent of fucking Showtime fodder on a Saturday at 3 in the afternoon. Basically. It's absurd. It, it, really, it really is just... And, and the worst part is that this doesn't just hurt the movie as a whole, but it's also just a, a, a slap in the face towards creativity and thinking outside of the box. It's the same thing that happened with Kick-Ass. It's the same thing that happened with Watchmen. People aren't ready for deep and insightful movies. Like, like Watchmen, the, you know, other than the fucking blue dick, the movie was fucking, it was, it was well-written, well-acted. It was very thought-provoking. It was very deep. Kick-Ass was a, a total fucking opposite of any other comic flick. You had profanity, you had blood, you had gore, you had violence, you had sex. But on the same token, there was a clear message in there that this movie is based on a comic. Don't take it seriously. Again, original, not successful from a mainstream standpoint, and the same thing is happening to Scott Pilgrim, except it's happening a lot quicker. I mean, it's, it's obvious that you don't take a movie like Scott Pilgrim seriously. People die and turn into coins. There like, you go. Come the fuck on. It's just a fun movie, and nobody's going to see it. And it's terrible. Exactly. And, we, we, and, and the worst part is we can argue these, these virtues and how Scott Pilgrim should be this far up the ladder and this far up on the box office. But, again, the, the demographic, it seems that people that like shitty comedies and testosterone junkies far outnumber the nerds and the geeks of the world. Like Dark Helmer said, he said the people that love Twilight are the people that go see Vampire Suck. And it must be. Because who the fuck yeah. else would go see that shit? Sad, but oh so true. It really is unfortunate, but I think 
that one of the reasons is because people are kind of falling back into that old, kind of the old hat that you were talking about with Piranha 3D, where they want that, that comfort zone. They just want something brainless. They want something that's, that's fun but doesn't take itself too seriously. And, you know, the Expendables, regardless of what it is, it is that. It's mindless. Vampires suck. Just, just you know, in looking at it and from what I've seen, I'm like, really, this is, this is what made $12 million this? You know, vampire sex jokes? I make these jokes on the fucking show for free. Compared to the vampire suck, freaking Piranha 3D is Inception. They actually put some random thought into it because even though it's about freaking Piranha, it's basically a rehash of Jaws, and they disguised it because the whole thing, like I said, the, you said the, the budget was $24 million. I made a joke. I said they spent most of that money paying off Richard Dreyfus. Probably. And, the only, and, and the Christopher Lloyd. The only thing Richard Dreyfus was in the movie for was because he played a role in Jaws. He plays the same role in Piranha 3D. The exact same character. That's the only reason why he's in the movie. It really is amusing that that's the that's the level that it's come down to. That's where you know that's where that that's where the moviegoers are are are, are flocking, man. They're flocking towards the bullshit. But you know what? We got um less than an hour left, so we can beat this up. But I, you know, it's it is unfortunate the way it went down, dude. But this seems to be the trend. Shitty movies are going to keep making money. Now we see that from the previews we see every time we go to see the movies. There you go. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. You got it, brother. Later. All right. Here's some other news. Josh Whedon talking about the Avengers. He said that there will be only one female Avenger, that being the Black Widow. Fuck, I almost had a brain fart there. But he said that there, but she will not be the only female character, which is dumb because one of the core members of the Avengers is the Wasp, who, for those of you living under a fucking shell, is a woman. And if she's not going to be involved in the movie, already I start seeing issues, but whatever. When he was asked about the script, he said, it'll be a new story that has many things from different arcs of the comics in it. There is no one Avenger story that you can just do the way that you can with, like, with the origins of Spider-Man. We're going to borrow a little bit from the original Avengers and a little bit from the Ultimates. The Avengers is going to start filming in February, so we're going to definitely see how that pans out. But in addition to that, they're rebooting the Fantastic Four franchise, which I mentioned briefly last week. They've already started to discuss casting for this, and here's, here's some crazy casting for you. For Reed Richards slash Mr. Fantastic, there, there's consideration between two actors, Adrian Brody, which I don't know why the fuck they would go that route, or Jonathan Reese Myers. Either one of those guys can be play, are going to be playing Mr. Fantastic. I would honestly go with Jonathan Reese Myers because Mr. Fantastic isn't an isn't a ugly-looking dude. You know, Adrian Brody, that, the, the nose fucks him up, man. You know, you need a little bit of leading man, you know, that has the hot, the hot wife, you know, you need that. Which leads me also to this, which is that Alice Eve, who was supposed to play Emma Frost but didn't, may be getting the part 
of Susan Storm in the next Fantastic Four franchise. So it's it's going to be definitely very interesting to see. I want to definitely see where they're going to go with Mr. Fantastic and where they're going to go with Dr. Doom. Just because Human Torch, you know, you can get a decent young guy who has a little a little ounce of sarcasm in him to play that. Also on the same note, I, you know, the thing is going to be completely CGI like the Hulk, so that's of no concern. But if you're going to include Doctor Doom and Mr. Fantastic, two guys that have an incredible amount of history between them, you can't just have cornball actors in there. Jonathan Reese Myers, I'm a little bit mixed on, but, you know, he does really well in the Tudors, and I think eh, something different, you want to go a little younger, that's fine. But Adrian Brody or Jonathan Reese Myers for Mr. Fantastic, folks. So I'm sure I'm sure you guys are gonna uh, you guys are probably gonna be annoyed at either one of those three casting choices. But who knows? Maybe you guys will agree and think that Jonathan Reese Myers might be the better alternative as opposed to Adrian Brody. We'll see how it pans out in the coming weeks when more casting news become available. Here's a movie that I didn't even know was being made, and I'm glad it's not. The proposed Aquaman movie has apparently been dropped after spending a long time in development hell, where it should stay. Producers still plan to include him in the Justice League movie, though, whenever that happens. That's what the source said about the situation. They were struggling to put together a film that would have been good enough to translate to screen. Aquaman is a difficult character to have in a solo movie because he's ro- his, role isn't good- his rogues gallery isn't good enough compared to ba- characters like Batman and Superman. He also doesn't have the backup characters and writing provided difficult, which were difficult for Warner Brothers. DC decided that they would drop the solo movie and just put him in the JLA with a little intro, most likely as the King of Atlantis was approached by the rest of the league. Let me tell you something. Aquaman's character does not need his own movie. See, this is what happens when you want to do ensemble superhero movies. They all get this crazy idea that nobody knows who Aquaman is. I, I I can ask the most casual person. They'll say, yeah, isn't he the guy that talks to fish? Because that's what he does. He talks to fucking fish. He has a trident. Then they try to make him a badass, and they give him a beard, and they cut his hand off. Uh, Aquaman is... Fu- you, know, you know what Aquaman is? Aquaman is like Screech in Saved by the Bell. He's there, but nobody really gives a fuck about him, but he needs to be there. Saved by the Bell, you needed Screech. Aquaman is the same thing. You need to have him there. He has a fucking hook. He's, he's the equivalent of a background character in a He-Man flick. Because if you looked at the He-Man movies, you know that most of those fucking characters, nobody gave a fuck about them. You know, my boy Karg or Blade or, or the fucking the lizard guy who got killed by Skeletor. Nobody gave a fuck about them. It was all about Skeletor and Evelyn and Beastman to an extent. Same thing with the Justice League. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. The holy trinity of the Justice League. That's what it is. Everybody else is an afterthought, and you can interchange members at leisure. The only guy who's secondary that should be in there always is the Flash. Flash should always be in there. Green Arrow to an extent also. Martian Manhunter. But everybody else, you have a guy on your, on your squad which is Plastic Man, who all his special powers do is allow him to stretch around shit. He's like, he, he's like a retarded version of Mr. Fantastic. That's what Plastic Man is. I mean, he had a cool cartoon growing up, and that was fine, but that's... Uh, fuck 
actually Plastic Man has more street cred than Aquaman does. Because at least he had a hot wife in the, in the cartoons and in the movies. Aquaman is just fucking an emo guy that talks to fish. His wife gets killed by every other bad guy. His kids get killed by every other bad guy. He has fucking bipolar issues. He's always mad. He's always surly. It's like, dude, I'm sorry. Put, you know, if you're always fucking clammy, you know, don't spend so much time in water. Get a girlfriend. Do something. It's like, you talk to fish. You have no other... Co- look up Aquaman on Wikipedia and look at his powers. He talks to fish. He has a little bit of superpowers. The fucking Mr. Mitzelplik, Batmite, is stronger than fucking Aquaman. Ah, I'm glad they're not making that fucking movie. In some other DC comic news, the authority may be coming to a theater near you, said artist Dean Haspiel. Haspiel posted a blog recently about his trip to the Creative Arts Emmys and mentioned that during a conversation with Stana Kaddick from Castle, he discovered that she was in talks for a role in the film version of the book. The authority was created by Warren Ellis in 1999, and it tells the story of a superhero team in the Wildstorm universe. But... Again, it's not 100% confirmed, but you never know. You may be seeing the authority on the silver screen. Hellraiser. Guess what it has? A sequel. Guess what's the annoying thing? Doug Bradley, famous for playing Pinhead, not going to be in the role. Not at all. Some new guy is going to be playing Pinhead? Are you fucking kidding me? Filming is supposed to start September 3rd. I don't know if it's going straight to DVD or not. Your main star is Peter Wilson who was in La Femme Nikita on fucking USA. That's all she's ever really done. She's your main star. Basically, Pinhead is back, and he's trying to get these two guys, Steven and Nico, and he's supposed to be... Um, these two guys are supposed to, of course, go to hell with Pinhead. Nico tries to switch places with a member of Steven's family. As a barter, terror ensues, blah, blah, blah. Why are you doing that? If Doug Bradley doesn't even want to play Pinhead, why would you want to do that? It's It's like, leave Pinhead alone. He's one of the few characters that remains relevant through DVD releases and cable shit. If this goes to theaters, it's going to bomb terribly, and not only that, it's going to sully the fucking legacy of a character who's really genuinely creepy looking. But... Here's some, here's some news that are going to add a little bit of fuel to the fire to the box office numbers. Dimension Films, already planning a sequel to Piranha 3D. We are thrilled that audiences are not just loving Piranha 3D, but cheering for it. And it's fantastic that so many critics are really getting the movie and recommending it. We can't wait to get back to work on a sequel. Director Alexander, I think it's Aja, had pre- previously stated that one potential story for a sequel was the full moon party in Thailand a huge event with like 200,000 young people from all around the world taking shrooms and partying on the beach. So, uh, sequel to Piranha 3D. There you go. Avatar sequels. Not one, but two. James Cameron dropped a little bit of knowledge on us about that. He said that you're not going to see the next series of films till at least 2014. Right now, the thinking is that the films 2 and 3 are going to be done together. They will be released separately, probably a year or even two apart. I'm mapping out the story right now, so there's a proper arc that plays out over two films, and that it buttons up nicely at the end of the two, so you don't get this horrible second-act Matrix feeling, where I just sat through a three-hour movie, and fuck all that, what the hell happened? 
That's exactly what James Cameron said. I definitely admire the fact that he's taking his time and he's going to do them back-to-back. And he def- and it's funny that he name-dropped The Matrix as being a movie that fell into that rut, because it is true. When The Matrix got into the second and the third one, it was a huge, what the fuck was that, when, you, when it was all said and done. You know, it's like, is Neo Jesus? You know, is that it? It, it, it? You know, it was really crazy the way The Matrix went down, and I, and I respect that Cameron wants to make sure that Avatar doesn't go that route. Moving on, according to the Heat Vision blog, Jessica Alba will be reteaming with Robert Rodriguez for Spy Kids 4. The film will serve as a reboot of sorts for the franchise, with Alba, with Alba playing the mother of a baby and two preteen children. Alba's going to be a former spy when the film gets and the film in the film where he, who gets reactivated. Her preteen kids will become new spy kids. Antonio Banderas, Alexa Vega, and Daryl Sabra, who were the original spy kids, are expected to return in supporting roles. The film, of course, will be shot in 3D. Got to blast through these news really quick. Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance started filming. Of course, Spirit of Vengeance is the sequel to Ghost Rider, which will have Nicolas Cage, of course, as Johnny Blaze and Ghost Rider. Needless to say, it will be shot in 3D. I'm really hoping that the bad guy in this movie is Vengeance. For those of you that don't know, Vengeance is the equivalent of Venom for Ghost Rider. And um, I think that he would translate really well into film. There's a lot of great history and a lot of great story there. You can even go with a Danny Ketch Ghost Rider also and make him vengeance if you want to kind of rewrite the story a little bit and add a second biker in there. I Wait and see approach for this. It's going to be shot in 3D, which we all know is going to happen, but Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, folks. In some Batman 3 casting news, uh, Marion Cotillard from Inception is being rumored to either be playing Selena Kyle or Talia Al Ghul in the upcoming Batman 3. Unfortunately, it's not 100% confirmed. Uh, there's rumors that she's not she, she may not be able to commit to the project because she may be working on some other projects, but something to look forward to. So that Marion Cotillard definitely in the running as either Selena Kyle or Talia Al Ghul, and I'm actually throwing her name in the chat so you guys can see what she looks like as either Talia Al Ghul or as Selena Kyle. Of course, in continuing to milk a franchise dry, we got the Little Fockers coming out. And it was originally rumored that Dustin Hoffman was not going to be returning to the film due some, to, to some contract issues. But according to Deadline, Dustin Hoffman is returning as Greg Fokker's father. And they will be doing some additional filming, and he will be appearing in the film. A.K.A. Dustin Hoffman needed some money. So he decided, this movie is going to make a decent amount of coin. Let me hop in and get a paycheck. Next up, you know that iPhone game? Angry Little Birds, or Angry Birds. It's really popular, sells a lot. Guess what's happening? Rovio, the company behind the iPhone game Angry Birds, has met with some Hollywood studios and is working on turning the game into a major franchise that will be moving into TV shows, movies, toys, and comic books. So there you go. Pretty much, this is the plot for the game. The game sees the birds in question embark on a campaign of vengeance against the castle-dwelling green pigs who have stolen the eggs of the birds. It has sold 6.5 million downloads so far. So basically, it's a whole bunch of birds attacking green pigs for a movie, possibly a TV show, 
maybe some toys, and some comic books from an iPhone game. There's your what-the-fuck news, folks. iPhone game, Angry Birds, movie. Gets better, though. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Katie Holmes is in talk to join the cast of the movie Jack and Jill. No, not the regular nursery rhyme Jack and Jill. Oh, you guys are going to love the plot of this. The film follows a family man named Jack who has to deal with his twin sister, Jill, when she arrives for Thanksgiving and then will not leave. Here's the kicker. Adam Sandler is the star, and he will be playing Jack and Jill. Katie Holmes will play the role of Jack's wife, and Al Pacino, for some reason, is going to be in the movie playing himself. So it's Adam Sandler playing brother and sister. Why doesn't Adam Sandler just continue to make regular comedies? Why does he always have to do these weird shits that, that just get borderline nuts? I'm going to play my brother and my sister, and it's going to be funny, and hilarity will ensue. Are we going the Eddie Murphy route? Are, are you going to play nine different characters, Adam Sandler? Is that it? Ugh, it fucking gives me a headache. Last two bits of movie news, Hostel 3, moving right along for a sequel. Kip Pardue, who was in The Rules of Attraction and The Wizard of Gore, has landed the lead role in the film. Scott Spiegel, who did From Dust Till Dawn 2, Texas Blood Money, which sucked, wrote the script and will direct the film. The film will see Pardue play a man who goes to his friend's bachelor party in Las Vegas, unaware that elite hunting is involved in the event. <sighs> really, going back to the well with the torture porn movies, you know, Saw 7, now we got to go back and dig Hostel out of the woodwork. Hostel 1 and 2 were fine. Doesn't need a third. Last but not least, a little bit of comic news. According to Deadline, Iron Fist will be making its way to major screens in the upcoming future. The Iron Fist, of course, is the story of Danny Rand, the Marvel martial arts superhero that was created in the 70s. Rich Wilkes from XXX has been brought on to write the screenplay. In the original version, Rand is the son of a wealthy explorer who trains in the martial arts and eventually gains the power of the legendary Iron Fist. Iron Fist is a magical fighting power that gives him indestructible fists. Later on, he teams with Luke Cage, of course, Power Man. Iron Fist is part of the New Avengers, a team which includes Luke Cage, Spider-Man, Wolverine, Miss Marvel, Hawkeye, and The Thing. Unfortunately, studio rights will prevent several of those characters from appearing together in a film. See, this is what I was discussing a couple of weeks back about all these characters needing to be under the Marvel umbrella, because a character like Iron Fist is good, but he's been in so many teams and is involved with so many characters that you kind of need him to play off those characters in order for a film to be successful. You know, Iron Fist is known for being in, in comics a lot with Spider-Man because he's a New York-based hero. Definitely very crucial. He, he's a member of the Avengers, so you can even toss him in there a little bit if you wanted to, even if it's in the background. You can even have him in Wolverine as a cameo. Wolverine has to talk to his buddy Danny about some stuff, and you see the Iron Fist costume in like a glass case. It's all about continuity. It's all about the universes mixing. They don't have to be outright mixes, but definitely um, you, know, you know, characters acknowledging their other counterparts in other, in other franchises. Like Wolverine definitely, you know, should be acknowledged like by the Punisher, or Wolverine should acknowledge the Punisher in some, some, in some flashback where he's like, damn, I went to New York, I ran into this crazy kook with a skull shirt on. He wanted to just kill everything and everybody. Nearly killed me. He could just be talking about that at a bar, and you can show that as a flashback. 
that's where that's why I like the concept of all the heroes being recognized under one universe because it opens up so many doors and you don't always have to make crossover films or or add characters for more than a couple of minutes but just little bits of fan service like you know a Spider-Man movie where he can be reading a newspaper and be like wow who's this guy and he's reading an article about Daredevil or you know Daredevil reading in Braille and reading about Spider-Man fucking saving a lady from a burning building. I think things of that nature tie in well towards the overall the, the overall scheme of things, and it just helps move certain characters along, especially third-tier characters like Iron Fist. If you want these guys to be successful, you've got to have them acknowledge the rest of the Marvel Universe, and not only that, but throw them in there a little bit so it can get some interest. Like, dude, I heard Spider-Man pops up in, in Iron Fist real quick, or I heard that, you know he bumps into the thing or, you know, he gets a call from Hawkeye and they show Hawkeye on like an Avengers aircraft carrier or with shield, you know, little things like that, just little tiny little things that can really help set apart just certain characters, especially minor ones like blade. Um, blade is a great example. You can acknowledge him in Spider-Man. You can acknowledge him in daredevil. Like, you know, like Matt Murdock saying, man, I got to go defend this crazy guy for like the third time that swears that there are vampires out there. Every time I, I, I got to defend him, he escapes. You know, just, just things like that where you don't even have to show the character, but just the acknowledgement helps to, to create a unified, a unified universe in, in the film industry just because it, it opens up so many doors. You know, some people, you know, I've, I've discussed this at length with Josh, you know, he feels that some characters, you know, the studios do good jobs with them. And I understand that. But just in the overall scheme of things, everybody should be um, applicable on the same plane. It's just how it is. Again, that's my take on the situation. With that said, that's actually going to wrap up the show for this week. I want to go through some plugs real quick. Of course, if you haven't, take an opportunity and stop by either the Facebook fan page or if you're my friend on Facebook, stop by my page and check out the link to donate to Making Strides Against Cancer. Again, you can donate as little as five bucks just to, uh, you know, my fiance's walking in, in memory of my mother just to raise some money, help the team meet their goal. It, as little as five bucks, stop in there if you want and show your support. Before donating to the site, donate to help make strides against breast cancer for sure. Um, like I said, it's, a, it's something that's very, very near and dear to me and if you want to help out, help them out because, you know, every little bit counts. With that said, let's get some plugs out of the way. Uh, RazorClothing.tv, of course, that's Razor Rob's clothing company. It's RazorClothing.tv. Northeast Wasteland, you can check out their site, NortheastWasteland.com. Kai also has a show. It's, uh, I believe, Northeast Wasteland Radio. You can get the details for that on NortheastWasteland.com. Go Creed Go, that's Austin Creed's website, better known as Consequences Creed from TNA, who is now known as Xavier Woods in the WWE Universe. If you're on Twitter, you can follow at Austin Creed, or you can follow his new persona at Xavier Woods. Of course, a shout-out to the Girl Gamer crew for always supporting My Take Radio, as well as the Gaming Angels crew. MMAGospel.com, catch their shows Wednesday, 8 p.m. on the Blog Talk Radio Network. MMA Valor for always supporting the show via Twitter. Um, always plugging the show, always retweeting all our articles. Definite shout-out to MMAValor.com for all your MMA news. VGN Radio, always hardcore supporters of the show. Check out their shows. Go to VGNRadio.com for their schedule. Uh, Don Anderson's Tumbling with Tumbleweed. That's Tuesdays at 10 p.m. He's part of the VGN Radio family. Stop by a show. 
let them know that you're coming from My Take Radio, show a little bit of support, help these guys, you know, move it along, especially Donnie. Donnie's just talented, super funny. He does these these great shows every week at, at 10 p.m. on Tuesday. So give it a listen. Let them know you're from My Take Radio. He'll definitely give you a shout-out. Cleveland Sports Radio, of course, is part of the VGN Radio family. Check their show out as well on vgnradio.com. Born Stubborn Radio, Blaine is doing a kick-ass job with the site. Take a few minutes, especially if you're a metalhead. Check out bornstubbornradio.com. Totally random, totally insane, but totally awesome. Last but not least, 411mania.com for their kick-ass coverage of all those great interests that I have, wrestling, MMA, um, movies, and video games. ocremix.org for their music, as always. MMA Junkie for their MMA news. And filmdrunk.com for just random nuggets of awesomeness where they shit on the Hollywood film industry. With that said, you've just listened to My Take Radio episode 57 for Thursday, August 26, 2010. You can email the host, that would be yours truly, at mtrhost at gmail.com with any questions, concerns, or suggestions. If you're on Twitter, you can follow my personal account. It's twitter.com slash akuma25, or you can follow the show account, twitter.com slash mytakeradio. If you're on MySpace, look us up, myspace.com slash mytakeradio, and of course, the Facebook fan page. Facebook fan page, 305 fans and counting. Do your part to help the My Take Radio Army grow so that we can continue to deliver awesome fucking radio for you guys every week. That's it. A little bit of epic NES music for the out. I'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for listening as always. Thanks for your support. Peace.